Hello, welcome to the Ideas Sleep Furiously podcast. I'm Matt Archer. Yes, as you can see, there is no video. If you're watching this on YouTube, I'm currently in Oxford filming some very special interviews. So actually, I'm doing the introductions for this podcast, the Matthew Wilson podcast, and the Jonathan Rose podcast, just on audio at the moment. But I, I can assure you that we will be back to regular programming very shortly. So today, I have the great honour of speaking with Matt Wilson. Obviously, I spoke to him a while ago. Uh, he is an anarchist thinker, an activist. He's the author of a brilliant book, Rules Without Rulers. The subtitle is The Possibilities and the Limitations of Anarchism. Matt is currently doing his second PhD at the University of Nottingham, where he's researching worker co-ops. In this interview, we talk about his book and split the conversation into first the possibilities that anarchism offers before acknowledging the tough questions for any future anarchist society, many of which don't have any good answers, but are certainly fun to think about and discuss. This was an incredibly long conversation. It runs for over two hours and 40 minutes. And as I've said previously, it takes a long time to edit and put together a podcast of such length. It's something I'm currently doing for close to free. So if you want to support the podcast and get early access to the podcast and my other videos on the main channel, you want to get your name in the credits and other bonuses like Zoom calls with myself, then you can support the show from just $1 on Patreon. Or you can buy me a coffee on Ko-fi. Those links are down below. I'm currently trying to do this full-time, and the only way that that can continue to happen is with your help. So if you want to support alternative media, then please do check out those links down below. But without further ado, I give you Matt Wilson. Okay, Matt, thank you for joining me. Um, Obviously, we're going to talk about uh, your book, Rules Without Rulers, The Possibilities and Limits of Anarchism. And I want to start by asking you about this idea of the anarchist common sense. So you quote David Graeber, who talks about anarchists wanting to mostly avoid high theory. Rather, they give a name and a voice to a certain kind of insurgent common sense. And the phrase, the anarchist common sense, is something that you use a lot in the book. Can you explain what you mean by that phrase? I think I, I was trying to do two things, I think, with, with that, that terminology. And I've, I, it's funny that you start with that question because I've become very interested in, or continue to be very interested in, in the idea of common sense. Um, I started to read a lot of Gramsci, who, who really, um, really built a lot of his, of his kind of political social analysis on, on the idea of common sense. So it's, as, as, as is often the case with, terms like that it means lots of different things to different people but I think what I was trying to do with it was to to translate a a, a culture a way of a way of seeing and doing and being um, that I saw that was common within within anarchism within within anarchist social movements at the time and to do that in a way that that allowed you to speak about um, a particular kind of position or certain positions um, whilst avoiding the kind of challenges that you might get from that which would often be from an from an academic perspective but also I think from a kind of ideological political perspective that if you say anarchists think this or anarchists say this and it, and if that's a challenge you know if you're saying something that's that an anarchist agrees with 
they'll they'll nod their head and say, yeah, that's right, anarchists say this. If you if you're challenging an anarchist and you say, well, anarchists say this, one of the really easy ways to to kind of to avoid that question or to deflect the criticism is not to respond to it directly, but to say, well, which anarchists? Who are you talking about? You say anarchists say this, but you know, which anarchists? And so if you say, well, you know, and I think I say this in the book at some point, um, you know, if, if I say, oh, well, you know, Kropotkin said this, then their response is, well, I'm not Kropotkin. You know, he's one person. That's not what anarchists say. That's just what Kropotkin says. And then you say, well, you know, Murray Bookchin said it and, and, and you get the same response and, you know, ad infinitum, you can just, until you can say every single anarchist that's ever lived has said this, then you can kind of get out of that criticism by doing that. And so the idea of the common sense was to say that this isn't, this isn't what every single anarchist believes. This isn't, you know, this isn't a kind of black and white principle, but broadly speaking, if we want to kind of engage with this, this movement and this kind of culture, this whatever we want to think of it as, if we want to engage with it, we've got to kind of come to terms with what it's thinking broadly. Um, and common sense is one way to kind of articulate that that idea. Um, you know, you, I could have used other phrases, but I think it's it has that kind of power that it's it's something that's broadly accepted by a social group. And in addition, it's also often something that's that's not really critically reflected on. It's something that's that's kind of learned. Um, that's not it's not a kind of reflexive sort of knowledge. It's, uh, it's something that you, you can often know without even knowing that you know it. It's, it has that idea as well that it's, it's, you know, so a lot of the things that I talk about in the book are things that, you know, kind of repertoires of thought that, that anarchists have about consensus, about freedom, about equality and so on, that weren't, that weren't high theory, that weren't, you know, avidly defended in theoretical texts, but it was just kind of what we as anarchists knew and said and, and thought. So yeah, I, I don't know if that answers the question entirely, but that was that was kind of my, my take on it. Yeah, I think maybe it'd be actually be useful for me to read out this really beautiful paragraph that you, you write as kind of a preface to the common sense idea. You say, I believe that anarchism is best understood as a set of basic moral demands which, through a complex network of crisscrossing narratives, are often articulated within certain discursive parameters, including, but not limited to, particular conceptions of human nature, rationality, power, and so on. Rather than resting on these foundations, however, the anarchist project is effectively free-floating, with the primary aim being the achievement of a certain moral rupture from the status quo. This is not to suggest that anything an anarchist might say is mere opportunism, but to highlight the possibility that what really lies at the core of anarchism is not a view of human nature, or of the state, or whatever, but rather a basic libertarian impulse that, when articulated, necessarily becomes intertwined with various other political, ethical, sociological, scientific, and cultural ideas, and perhaps above all, with, uh, with often highly contextualized tactical beliefs, like all ideologies, anarchism is best understood as incorporating a core set of values that exist in a fluctuating relationship with a larger collection of peripheral ideas, which is obviously Michael Frieden, um, some of which may be used to retros retrospectively justify these values. Uh, do you still hold to that, or is there anything you would like to modify or elaborate on? 
no i think yeah i think that's i think that's broadly true and broadly true of, of as i as i say there and you know that's not just anarchism um it's you know it's any any kind of political belief or any any belief really i think it's um that's that's broadly true of how humans engage with with politics and with the world so we start with this idea of anarchism as people like Bakunin and really like the, the, the founding fathers of uh, anarchism as a political theory talked about this, this yearning for human freedom, this impulse, this instinct. Uh, and obviously they are writing at a time of you know, much more oppression than we can imagine now. Um, and so that kind of makes sense. Uh, and you get, you, you get a, 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 there should be caveats attached to everything that we say in this conversation, that anarchism is a very broad movement, right? And perhaps we'll even talk about things like anarcho-capitalism, which obviously most anarchists see as like this internet meme that's got nothing to do with actual anarchism. Um, but that should give you, you know, give most people an idea of how broad um, and perhaps even contradictory the ideas are. Um, but we, we start from this idea that, I guess I, it, it is a view that, humans have a yearning for freedom and that is in some way in many ways suppressed by uh the state and capitalism right so we could i guess we could kind of say that apart from those weird ancaps the anarcho-capitalists uh there's a common thread in the rest of the anarchist uh milieu that to be an anarchist means to be against unjustified hierarchy um and that will mean the state and probably capitalism right not necessarily markets right markets could be useful but the the idea of capitalism um fine how do we then understand this is the the broadest question imaginable but how then do you understand the possibilities that anarchism can offer us in terms of some of the let's let's start with the big ones right if if we're talking about what anarchism can offer the world uh we're dealing with Okay, a world that's got an in, it just. I mean, we can measure it, but it, 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 the, the the rational optimists like Pinker and Hans Rosling and Matt Ridley talk about how much the world has improved, often thanks to capitalism, right? But we still have existential risks: climate change, the threat of nuclear Armageddon. As technology improves, that could be you know, extend to you know, groups like ISIS um, dropping. Uh, vials of you know, uh, deadly diseases uh, onto cities with drones, right? We, you've got all these uh, existential th uh, threats. And then, I guess, more of the banal everyday stuff about um, human organization and how we're alienated and you know, mental illness. There, there's a panoply of problems that you can talk about. But if you had to talk about some obvious ones that anarchism seems to have, perhaps not, you know, it's not a panacea, it's not going to solve everything, but it can certainly make some some of these things better. Where would you start? I think, I mean, and it, uh, if you're asking me where I start, as opposed to to where anarchism or anarchists might start, because I I, I definitely diverge certainly from the the anarchism of the of the kind of beginning of this century, the the anarchist movements that I that I kind of talk about a lot in the book, um, which I obviously have a lot of sympathy for and a lot of time for in some respects, but 
um, do do diverge from from lots of anarchists, um, and in, in particular on the issue of of this idea, which still doesn't have for me uh, an adequate terminology. Um, but what's often known as lifestyle politics, um, and I really do hate hate the the phrase lifestyle politics. But for me, one of the, the, the interesting things about anarchism, the thing that always appealed to me was the idea of, 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 a, of an immediate and direct response um, and unmediated. So that can be translated in, in lots of different ways. And I think for me, it was translated in, in quite an unhelpful way with, with often with the kind of rise of the direct action movements. They, I mean, it achieved a lot and I was heavily involved in what we would call the direct action scene um, in the UK. Um, the idea that, you know, you, rather than writing to your MP or going on a protest or, or um, whatever it was, uh, trying, to, trying to kind of take state power, you would, you, would, you would just kind of directly intervene. So you would go and sit in front of a truck or you would go and sit up a tree and you would stop, you would stop that kind of forest being cut down or you would stop that truck getting from A to B. The problem with that, I think, is it's, I mean, it's powerful and it's sometimes effective um, and I have a lot of admiration for it in many respects, but it's, it's actually still quite symbolic. It's not necessarily that direct because, you, you know, the truck is probably going to get from A to B eventually, and the forest is probably going to get cut down eventually. So it's not it's not worthless, but the, the idea of it being direct and unmediated, I think is slightly kind of misleading. I think it was still quite a kind of symbolic protest, kind of, um, there's still the element of protest there. You know, you're still kind of, you're trying to get the media, you're trying to get people involved and so on. But for me, where, where anarchism has been really effective, and it's obviously not just anarchism that does this, um, but it's, it's in that genuinely direct response in changing the way we try to navigate our, our daily lives. And so it's in setting up co-ops and you know, changing our behaviour, but changing our behaviour as communally and socially as possible, and really starting to, to kind of live never outside capitalism and never outside the state because that's you know that's really not not possible but to try and start navigating kind of social pathways to build new common senses to kind of go back to to the kind of previous question both mentally but also so socially materially to build new ways of of being um in the world and i think that ultimately is the only it's only a necessary path to social change that we start to to create those those new habits those new infrastructures um and i think whatever the problem whatever the problem is whether it's you know a, a threat of terrorism whether it's a threat of capitalism whether it's a threat of climate change starting to think about the way we behave and, and and doing that in two ways like what one is one is whatever change that that behavior leads to whatever kind of actual behavioral change you get but also the 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 kind of if you like the meta change or it, which is to think about our thinking and our doing 
to to be more reflexive to to break those patterns of common sense to break those patterns of habitual behavior and that's one thing that i think probably the most interesting thing that's that's coming through with 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 covid is is kind of encouraging and sometimes forcing people in a society to reflect on our behavior and we're incredibly bad at doing that and we're doing it incredibly badly with covid you know it's still very generic and simplistic you know oh everyone's going to work from home oh maybe we won't all work from home you know there's still these kind of demands for simplistic and easy answers but it has it has kind of facilitated that conversation of like oh we were all we were all doing this before and maybe we don't need to do that maybe we need you know maybe we can do things differently we're very you know we, we like to think of ourselves especially now in the 21st century with you know the enlightenment and the internet and our incredible brains you know that that we're that we're not just profound creatures of habit but we are profound creatures of habit um and anarchism kind of interrupts that and encourages us to 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 look at our lives uh, in the micro as well as the macro and and to kind of re-navigate that um, and like I say anarchism doesn't always do that very well and there are other political and social positions that also do that so I don't I don't kind of single out anarchism for good or bad but I think that's where certainly an anarchist tendency can can be really beneficial okay so people might listen to that and think that sounds sounds, sounds nice uh but it doesn't sound concrete right so they might push you for these more concrete ideas and like like we said that's hard because anarchists don't like blueprints and this is something you point out in the book is wonderful but also problematic especially when we're trying to persuade people to uh yeah embrace some of these principles so let's make it easier let's start with those first two anti-capitalism and kind of uh not anti-hierarchy necessarily, um, but justify the hierarchy. Um, so maybe just as an aside here for people coming to this that don't know a lot about anarchism, I'll just give the the Noam Chomsky line, right, where he says, uh, "Look, if if you've got a fucking PhD in <laughs> nuclear physics, you should probably run the the nuclear power plant if we're all going to decide as a community that nu- or mo- you know, two thirds of us decide that nuclear is the way to go, and that's how we ratify it in you know the the anarcho-syndicalist society um that that's legitimate um but we're we're faced with these encounters all the time like traffic lights are a form of that's an imposition but do we want to live in a world without traffic lights if my seven-year-old niece runs out into the road i have to stop her i have to use some coercive force but i think i can offer a justification if you challenge me on that right so this i guess this also gets at what you mean by the common sense like some of those are just totally obvious others aren't right some are edge cases um but there are there are also problems that we really need to talk about and i'm sure we'll come on to those um but let's start with like the concrete one which is anti-capitalism and the idea that we don't live in a democracy because democracy doesn't really extend to the workplace um i recently interviewed david goodhart who i guess is a classic social democrat in a way um and I asked him about David Graeber's bullshit jobs and the idea that, you know, obviously workplace democracy is by no means a panacea. We're not going to solve everything just by, you know, we're going to make a lot uh, things a lot more complex in many ways by in- including more voices. Um, 
but it could offer it could offer some hope to people who are utterly alienated to Amazon workers who are fucking pissing in bottles to avoid you know they're wearing or well, those you know, those uh, you know the biotech that measures oh, their pulse or something just you know, totally dystopian. Whilst Jeff Bezos has apparently made uh, so much money during the pandemic that he could afford to give every worker something like a hundred thousand dollars and still have as much money as he had at the start. Right, so. If that doesn't make you want to investigate anti-capitalism or at least radical reform, if you want to be a liberal or a social democrat, I don't know. You know there's something wrong with you. Um, I could be wrong. Right? Maybe there's a good argument for Jeff Bezos having trillions and trillions of dollars, but I fail to see it. So, um, David, David, uh, I'm, I, and I'm sure David would argue that this isn't <laughs> that's not a good thing how Amazon work is being treated. Right. But he did t- kind kind of make the argument that we already have workplace democracy in many in many respects, and he kind of leaned on this idea of. And I, I want to steel man his position. I don't want to put like some weak version forward of the argument. So, uh, look, you can raise issues with your boss. You can become the boss. You can climb the hierarchy. Um, you have flexibility. Flexibility. You know, the more flexible the labour market is, right? You can leave that job if you want to. Um, and I think he's right about those things. Like, there's much, there's much more of a democratic ethos than perhaps uh, those on the left would like to admit. But to call it workplace democracy, I think, is a bit of a misnomer. What would you like to say to the claim that we already live, uh, we already have, in many sectors, a type of workplace democracy? Whilst obviously acknowledging that I don't think David is going to claim that the Amazon workers have workplace democracy and that they should have more rights. But he would say that you know, unions are a thing, right? They're they're fantastic, but. Yeah, I'm I'm rambling, so I'll let you I'll let you reply to um this idea. I mean, yeah, I, I, for me, there's no there's no question we we don't have workplace democracy except where we have democratic workplaces, which you know constitutes a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage. Um, I mean, worker co-ops, worker co-ops constitute, I think, something like one percent of the cooperative movement, and the cooperative movement constitutes something like 12% of the global economy. So you're talking about 1% of 12% and that's that's kind of worker co-ops. And even some of those are questionable um, in terms of their, their kind of commitments to, to workplace democracy. I think there's a confusion there with 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 workplace democracy and and uh, and the capacity to I mean, you know, people people can people can refuse anything, and then they can go and starve in a ditch, or they can have a bullet in the back of their head. You know, you can always say no. Yeah. If you don't like it, get out. You've got freedom. Yeah, that, but that's that's not democracy, is it? Democracy is being able to, and democracy isn't being able to climb up the ladder. And I, I mean, not many people would like. Clearly, most Amazon workers aren't going to be in a position to to become the next Jeff Bezos for, for any number of reasons. Um, but even if they were, even if it were the case um, that any single one of them could do that, there's there's a, there's a there's an internal kind of contradiction to the notion of workplace democracy there because if one of them, if any one of them can do it, it means the rest of them won't be able to do it because they can't all be the Jeff Bezos unless it becomes a democratic business. Um, and it's not a democratic democratic business. It's it's a kind of classic capitalist hierarchy. A workplace democracy is premised on the, the workers owning and controlling the, the business. Um, and, and ideally, 
extending beyond that to to look at the the multiple stakeholders um of of a business because clearly you know a business has has ramifications um in both ways you know it has influences and is and is, is connected to to more than itself basically so 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 having more than workplace democracy is obviously a, an ideal but yeah i think workplace democracy is a very kind of concrete answer to a lot of our problems and it's something that's gaining traction it's being talked about more and more obviously the more the more common it becomes the more watered down it becomes so now you know there, there are kind of it's always the case that when it when a kind of quite a radical idea starts to kind of gain traction it, it quickly people start to present much more more kind of watered down ideas so so kind of these these kind of ESOPs, the employer employee share ownership programs, and 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 different types of of kind of worker engagement and worker empowerment, um, and you know you have you have things like John Lewis, which you've had for a long time, and you know where you have these quite kind of oblique um, kind of nods towards democracy. They're certainly certainly much better than your average kind of capitalist corporation, but still far a far cry from an actual kind of worker control. Why are they, they better? Sorry. Why Why are they better? You know, someone who is, is or just just why is workplace democracy better? Right? So people who are um, you mentioned a few things here, and obviously I, I'm going to try and still man these these positions. So um, let's let's go for the philosophy of it, right? So why should workers control it? Um, are you saying that we should appropriate people's businesses? If I if I have a really good idea, if I'm the next Elon Musk, right? Um, and uh, yeah, what, why why is it that I shouldn't take more of the money, you know, more of the profit? But let's tackle these fundamental, like classic criticisms of, I guess, the anti-capitalist movement. Well, I mean, one of the, one of the most basic answers is um, we don't, you know, we don't have, and I, th I think I think we should be. It's one of my frustrations with with anyone who's critical on the left who refers to uh, kind of our societies as democracies, and I think really like to see you know we talk we talk a lot about political correctness, and I'd really like us to be correct in our political language when we come to talk about our society. And I really don't think we should talk about our societies as democracies because they're not in any meaningful way, as far as I'm concerned. But Leaving that aside for a moment, we we generally most people would um, consider that we should live in a democracy, um, and most people consider that we do. But most people, at least, would consider that we should live in a democracy politically. We should be able to choose our politicians, and that, obviously, that's how democracy is translated in the kind of common sense. Um, but when it comes to the workplace, the economy, that that idea has been has been left. Um, you know, it's so we have this, and then and that's part of the kind of liberal kind of uh, sleight of hand um, that it kind of separates these these elements of society in a, in a completely artificial way, and in, in a way that makes no kind of coherent sense, um, except ideologically. Uh, it's it's a very kind of 
shrewd, powerful manoeuvre. So we have the, you know, we have the personal life and we have the economic life and we have the political life. And so politically, we're supposed to have this democracy and then the economy, which affects, you know, every, every element of our life, every element of the world, we, we suddenly have this idea that we, we can have no say in it. Of course, we're supposed to all have a say in it as consumers. Um, and and any hint that we that that should be taken away is you know is a terrible kind of totalitarian lurch you know that's the that's the kind of communist bogeyman that we we're not free sovereign consumers um, but that that becomes completely abandoned when when it gets to the workplace so one answer to that kind of question or to that kind of critique is to kind of turn it on its head or not not to turn it on its head but to throw it back at whoever says that and say why shouldn't if you think we should be democratic politically if you think we should be sovereign as consumers why shouldn't we also be why why do you make that distinction between the workplace and and the, the politics and the consumption and i think most people and this is where you know a classic kind of common sense attribute most people would actually if they were honest their their honest answer would be I, I i don't know i've never thought about it like that because because we don't because we're not we're not you know we're not encouraged to so that's one kind of one response is if we want democracy it needs to be it needs to be kind of coherent in them and therefore it needs to be across the board can i just um try and so you you, you i think you made the brilliant point that most people have this um, common sense response that, oh, yeah, I guess perhaps we should have more of that. So I want to give more of like the sophisticated intellectual response, like the the economics undergrad undergraduate who's you know he's 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 done his reading, and they might say that that's a wonderful idea. And I agree that if we can have more equality, more more equality of opportunity, you actually have a chance to you know put things to your boss. I mean, you can do this anyway, right? I guess this is what David Goodhart is thinking. Right? You can put ideas forward; and they can be taken up. There is there are elements of democracy. Um, however, the reason we can't go full, you know, everything can't be a cooperative is, I guess they they might say there are two reasons. Again, one, it's ethical. Like I I want to start an enterprise. I'm the boss. I have the idea. So. You know, join me and I'll make you rich, but you have to kind of do what I say at some level, like the final say is with me. Um, and then the other answer might be a more pragmatic answer, which also bleeds into that philosophical answer, which is, if you do do that, we all get phenomenally, you know, the, the cake grows, we get much richer. Um, so subordinate yourselves, right, because some of you are morons, right, and you, you can only, okay, probably, I'm not still manning here, but this is really, I think, the underlying logic. Like, some of you aren't qualified to become the next Jeff Bezos, right? You're not going to go to Princeton and study physics or whatever he did. So I'm very clever, and I can increase the pie with my great ideas. Right? And obviously there, there's an element of truth there, right? Other, you know, other people are just fit to, you know, mop the floor. But if you do mop the floor at Amazon, you will get much wealthier than, you know, what are you going to do? You're not going to come up with the next Amazon. So th therefore that kind of bleeds in, ooh, yeah, that bleeds into a, um, an idea of moral desert, right? And what you're, what you're worth. How does the anarchist respond then? Well, it was, there's a, there's a lot there. There's a lot of responses there. I, I mean, the, in terms of desert, I, I kind of challenge anyone to say why Jeff Bezos should should have have more than a than a nurse or a teacher, um, or or someone who's who's 
working on the shop floor because Jeff, the, I mean, there's there's a lot of fantasy there, isn't there? The idea that Jeff Bezos kind of earned earned that money, created that kind of wealth, and then is sharing it with the workforce. When actually, of course, the opposite is true. Jeff Bezos isn't out there de de delivering all his all all those little parcels. It's the workforce doing that. And the fact that he had an idea and the fact that he was in the right time, the right place to kind of implement that idea. Um, really, you know, you, you're talking about, look, this, this, you know, this, this whole kind of capitalist fantasy of this kind of, you know, the, the incredible entrepreneur who, who has all this, you know, this kind of this capacity and they've become, they've become the Elon Musk or the Bill Gates because of their genius. Um, and what that does is, is, it, is it disguises the lie of capitalism, the, the fact that actually it's a brutal world um, where the people who, for, for, for any number of reasons, and some of them might be, you know, some of them are, are about a bit of skill or, or, you know, a bit of creativity, but you, you, you have that on top of luck. Um, you know, the spatial temporal look, you, you're there at the right time, the right place, you do the right things. And this is the thing with capitalism is once you kind of get ahead, and anyone who's played Monopoly will know this, once you get ahead, then you just keep on getting ahead. And once you've, you know, you've made your, your kind of, uh, your kind of first million, it's easier to make your next million. And obviously not everyone becomes still the Jeff Bezos, but there's no, you know, there's no, um, for me, there's just no argument that because because you've made a million, you should therefore just keep making millions and millions and millions. And Jeff Bezos is not, uh, he's not feeding those Amazon workers. They're feeding themselves. They're creating a business that's, that wouldn't exist without all those workers. And I mean, there's just this, there's so many ways of responding to that, but, but two, two kind of fundamental things for me is, one is to say that without Jeff Bezos, maybe we wouldn't have Amazon, but maybe that wouldn't be a bad thing actually, because if we, if we look at the bigger picture, we've got, we've got people starving, we've got people dying because they're eating too much, and we've got a planet that's about to die. Um, and so, on, a, on a, just a kind of fundamental level, we, we're doing things incredibly badly. We're, we're making a lot of mistakes. And, and, and so any kind of defense of the status quo needs to acknowledge the, the, the shit that we're in and needs to, if, they, if, if that defense is gonna continue, needs to argue why, why we need something like Amazon. Because often it's, there's a kind of circularity to a defense like that. It's, if we didn't have hierarchy or capitalism, we wouldn't have Amazon, but we don't need Amazon, you know? And so, you know, you're kind of defending one thing by defending a, a, a product of it. You, need, you know, we, we need capitalism because otherwise we wouldn't have Amazon but that's not a defense of capitalism. You need to defend Amazon. And the, and the defense of Amazon is it's giving people work, it's, it's providing you know, income for X number of people. And so then the, then, then the response to that is, well, actually, if, if you're talking about a basic kind of economic argument, you've got one person who, like you say, is taking such a massive proportion of that pie that he's, 
he's, he would he would be able to give everyone was it a hundred thousand pounds I think he said but anyway it's clear that he's taken a massive proportion of the pie so why not split the pie up equally so then the argument becomes well you couldn't do that you couldn't do that if you didn't have the Jeff Bezos you'd need that you need that position of power and that is that is a pure that's you know I, I love I love kind of when you when you hear people who think they're really kind of hard-headed rational pragmatic economists and, they, and they'll say well you, you know you need that you need that Jeff Bezos because there's no empirical evidence there that you need that Jeff Bezos companies start all the time as co-ops people collaborate to make things and it doesn't have to be the case that every single person in a co-op does the same thing and has the has the same role that's not you know that's not what workplace democracy is about you can still have people with great ideas and other people who implement them but we can decide together and we can share the spoils of our work saying well you had the great idea but i clean the fucking toilets so i want half the pie thank you very much because you know your great idea was was great but you know you, you had that idea whilst you were having a pint of beer in the pub you know and i i've been cleaning the toilet all day so there's no idea why you should there's no reason why you you don't have innovation i hate that term but there's no reason why you don't have innovation why you don't have ingenuity why you don't have abundance why you don't have all the sorts of things you know we've come to absurdly associate with with capitalism in a cooperative setting people still want to you know i i mean my co-op makes beer i still want to make nice beer i still want to kind of create different beers that people like i don't need to be profiting more than other people to to do that and that's i mean that's also a, i think a really kind of powerful idea is or a response is if you need if you need millions of pounds to motivate you to do something maybe it's not worth doing it uh, if you need that if you know this idea that well we, we people wouldn't people wouldn't do this work or we couldn't get these people to do this work if we didn't pay them this is this absurd horrific horrendous amounts of money it's all well, well then i mean that's it's, it's almost kind of an acknowledgement that there's something profoundly wrong like don't don't do it then. If you need to, if you need someone to receive billions of pounds in order to compensate them for that, then and maybe we don't need that work doing in the first place. Um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm kind of rambling now because there was just so many. No, it's fine. It's fine. Let let me let me try and hone in on one because again, I, I want to kind of split this interview into like the possibilities of anarchism, responding to these um, traditional critiques, and then we'll hit the the limitations. So. I think yeah, good, 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 good uh, responses. But then the capitalist, or just like you know, classical liberal, the free, you know, the phrase of the day at the moment, uh, can come back and say if they're educated, right? They've read their Robert Nozick, and they'll say, ah, the Wilt Chamberlain example. So for people that don't know, uh, the uh, American philosopher Robert Nozick um, got into a uh, an exchange with John Rawls. Uh, I guess in the 17th onwards, about basically liber liberalism versus American libertarianism, so which is much more you know right wing and free markets, right pro pro capitalist than what we mean by libertarianism in 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 Europe. So uh, Nozick 
came up with this, uh, well, it's probably not original, but he says, look, take the example of this famous, I think in the 70s, um, basketball player, Wilt Chamberlain, right? So you talk about David Beckham or Ronaldo or Messi today, right? Um, it's, not, it's obviously not that simple, but the idea is that, look, people are freely choosing to buy the tickets to go and see Wilt Chamberlain, to see Messi, to see Ronaldo, to see Federer. They're, they're buying the shirts, they're buying the boots. And so, Wilt Chamberlain and Lionel Messi, they benefit from each individual's free choice to basically give them loads and loads of money. What's unethical about that? You're saying that I've freely chosen, that, that Messi is so entertaining, he's the best footballer of all time, I want him to have this money, right? And the market, therefore, is such an efficient mechanism because it rewards him for this immense talent that we all enjoy. Um, perhaps I'll, 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 um, I'll leave it at that because that's kind of the, 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 the basis of that, that uh, capitalist reply. I mean, I think there are two, there are two kind of basic answers, answers to that. One is that that's... I mean, I, obviously, knows it kind of presents that as a thought experiment, but then he uses it to defend a, uh, an economic system based on that thought experiment. But the two don't translate because that is a thought experiment, and that's not how capitalism works. You know, football superstars don't make their money because everyone walks up to the pitch and puts a, a pound in a in a in a pot. They make their money because eight-year-old children uh, making shoes in Cambodia and being paid less than a dollar a day to do that. And then those shoes are being sold for $100 in, in North America and Europe. And then the companies that take the $99.5 profit from that uh, are then giving some of that money to, to football teams, to advertise their shoes that are being made by people who are effectively slaves um, and that's just I mean that's just kind of one one leg of that journey but people who well Chamberlain never didn't become rich because people were just you know it's not a busking situation where people throw money into your, your kind of upturned baseball cap um, there's all sorts of capitalist relations of, of production and ownership that are going on to make that kind of wealth so that's one response the second response is the thought that you know if you if you, you kind of step away from the reality and this is what knows it kind of does in 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 his kind of classic book anarchy state and utopia and talks about you know it is you know it is abstract political philosophy um and then you could say well what's what's wrong with that and the response to that is what's wrong with that is not that you have, and this is, you, you, you know, you take away the, all the kind of social reality and, and questions like, for example, why would you even have a baseball player that suddenly everyone wanted to watch without, you know, without advertising, without the media? Would it really be the case that, you know, a football player was, was just so good that everyone in the world would want to come and do that without the paraphernalia, the circus of, of you know, capitalist sporting industry and the media and so on. Take all of that away for, for a second and kind of return to the to the abstract kind of nosic experiment and say, why, why shouldn't everyone be able to do that? And the answer is 
because you then create a social situation that's detrimental to to everyone Walt Chamberlain included and humans have a legitimate argument to prevent social situations that are detrimental to themselves and if they don't Nozick's got a real problem in arguing how and why they don't because Nozick as a libertarian would say no one has the right to interfere with me as, a, as an individual the paradox of that and this is the libertarian paradox and it's and it's the it's the problem that anarchists kind of struggle with when they want to engage with those things in a more honest level is if if i can't interfere with you you can't interfere with me and if you're what you're doing is going to interfere with me then i can interfere with you to stop your interference and you kind of get into this kind of circular libertarian nonsensical kind of problem which is why which is why fundamentally the idea of freedom is just is 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 in many ways a really unhelpful philosophical tool because it it just leads to too many kind of absurd paradoxes but to come to come back to that situation if if, if a social situation is developing where someone is going to amass a certain amount of wealth and thereby amass a certain amount of power and if as a society we see that that dynamic is 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 progressing and we see the we see the ramifications of that. You know, you see your neighbor building a wall and then building a gun and then and then building a bigger wall around the river and then building a dam and building more guns. You know, you start to say, hold on a minute, this is this is gonna impact on our society, this is gonna impact on us. And as libertarians, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna stop you doing that because it's interfering with our freedom. And the situation of Walt Chamberlain amassing this money is also amassing power and it's changing the social dynamic. And people have got, even from a libertarian perspective, a right to, to, to change that. In the same way that Nozick would say people have got a right to prevent a large state developing because the development of a large state will infringe on personal liberty. Well, the development of huge personal wealth will inevitably then infringe on personal liberty. So we have a society, perfectly legitimate grounds to say, this behavior in and of itself isn't detrimental, but taken as a whole, and this is where it's going, it's going to be detrimental. And so we're going to, we're going to navigate our, our way around that. We're going to say, no, we don't, we don't want that situation to develop. I think that's, I don't think, I've never heard a libertarian respond to that kind of, to that response, because I think libertarianism is a fundamentally, and as with some anarchism, it's fundamentally, it's an absurd position because you just cannot, you can't get around that paradox of you can't interfere with me, but what happens if you do, then I can interfere with your interference. Okay, so perhaps the liberal says that, well, there are two things. The kids in the factories making those shoes, they have jobs, right? And look, look, look what happened before capitalism. Look, no one's, no one's for poverty wages, right? Uh, the liberals might even say, look, it's disgusting what Nike and Primark do. Um, but 
it's better than what happened pre-capitalism when they the kids just died, right? Yes, they're on a dollar sixty a day, right? They're just above that um, UN absolute poverty threshold, right? Um, but if you look at the trend, here's where we bring in kind of the rational optimist approach, right? And I'm really, I think people on the left do not give enough credit to just how insane the progress has been in raising people out of global poverty. No one's saying it's perfect, but I think we need to acknowledge that this is... I remember David Graeber once tweeting um, for replies to the rational optimists. He's like, this seems like just such a... There's so much data. I think there's a book that the Cato Free Market Institute just put out called 10, Trend, 10 Trends Every Educated Person Should Be Aware Of. And it, it, like, some of the data is incredible. You look at women in education, literacy, medicine, uh, even like climate change. I think there are like more trees and more greenery because of carbon dioxide um, in the last, you know, it's, it's, it's gone up like 20% or something mental, right? More people can be living in cities so their carbon footprint goes down. There are so many trends that are just kind of obfuscated by the, the news cycle, which are incredibly positive and can really be attributed in large part to the capitalist model that actually even people like David Graeber think, well, how actually do you respond to this? Um, so that kind of bleeds into this idea of the pie gets larger, the kids have jobs, it's horrendous, but we're slowly moving towards you know automation where we can get rid of those jobs anyway um so maybe let's just tax Wilt Chamberlain right if we can agree that yeah we should kind of curtail his liberty somewhat to you know ha have that much money and therefore that much power let's just tax him at a slightly higher tax rate and we'll redist redistribute that money why do we have to go all the way to like anarchism and again we kind of haven't answered that question of what so you are you going to appropriate people's businesses what gives you the right to do that so I guess there are, there are three things there. The pie, why not just tax him, go the liberal route, and are you saying that you want to take people's businesses that they've built for themselves? Um, so the, so the, the, the bigger pie, this, I mean, two, two responses to that, kind of one, I suppose, looking backwards and one looking forwards is these kind of ideas of, of, um, of progress. It, it, it's complicated and, and I agree that, the, you know, it's, it's easy for some people to just kind of, if you're on the left and you're critical of capitalism, to, to not kind of engage with those honestly. Um, I think, you know, the world has changed a lot in the last two, three hundred years. What we had, depending on where you look in the world, but what we had before was not a system that the most anarchists on uh, of the left are, are going to defend you know if you if you look if you look in the kind of context of the uk you're coming out of a feudal society but if you go back even further and if you go back to to various points of of humanity around the world you find areas where people lived quite pleasant lives they maybe didn't live lives that were as long as, as ours are now but there's a kind of there's a there's a subjective question there isn't there it's like do you know do we is is other number of years we're alive the kind of is that the is that the goal we're going for you know if we could if if i if someone said well human life is going to become more miserable more unequal more more violent over the next hundred years, but by the end of it, we'll all be living an extra fifty years. I'm not sure that many people would kind of sign up for it. Can I just can I just interrupt there because I know what people are going to say to this? They're going to say, "Go and look at a skull, right, of um, humans that 
uh, had tooth cavities, right? And see, and see if you can imagine how painful it was to die of tooth decay. See, look at the infant mortality rate. Are you seriously telling? Are you seriously telling these people that life is more miserable today because you know mental health issues? I think mental health or dying the most excruciating death from tooth decay. You're deluded. Anarchism is deluded. Yeah, I mean, one answer to that would be, well, let's 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 go and see what the eight-year-old who made your shoes has to say. <laughs> you know, um, it's it's easy to kind of it's always easy to make the the argument of of inequality um, being good for everyone if you're the one who's who's on the better side of that inequality. And that was always kind of the issue with John Rawls. You know, the kind of maximum principle that you know it's okay to have inequality as long as it raises the bar for everyone and it is very easy to answer that um or to, to kind of defend that position if you're the one you know well i am privileged i am comfortable i have got all these things and and there are billions of people who are practically starving but if it wasn't for me having all of these things you know those people would be even even more hungry even uh, with even worse tooth decay um so that so it's which doesn't make it wrong of course it doesn't make it wrong that that's that it's easier but we do have to be careful about which where you know where we're where we're making that argument from and whether it's um whether it's as powerful and whether people would would really um always kind of sign up to those things this just 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 briefly though i mean i don't want to get too kind of and I don't think we should, it's, it's not that useful necessarily to kind of get too kind of heavily to, to go down that route too much. But I think there are questions about health and well-being and longevity that the kind of tooth decay, crushed skull, impoverished argument of, of human life isn't it isn't that simple there are examples of societies where people have been seem to have lived relatively happy healthy lives um and so it's not the case that we've you know and if you look at if you look at animals if you look at other animals if, you know monkeys or whatever in the wild they're not they're not in, in a constant state of misery and there's really no reason to think if we were all so fucking miserable, we, we would have died out. You know, we, we've 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 continued to exist as a species because we've been able to to exist because we've been able to procreate and develop and age and, and so on. And no, I, I don't think you look at any animal in the wild really and think, God, that's just miserable. Every day it's having a miserable life. You can make the argument, and certainly anarcho-primitivists and, and many other people would make the argument that actually. You live a you live a much more holistic, in tune, happy life in in a much more kind of primitive life. But I'm not going to make that kind of defence entirely. But I think we do have to kind of listen to that. The argument I would make is any argument for progress, any 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 argument that well now we can you know now we can kind of cure tooth decay, now we can do this and that. That did happen through capitalism. But there's no there's no kind of empirical way of proving that it couldn't have happened without capitalism. And there's definitely not an empirical argument. And I don't think there's a philosophical argument to say it can't now continue and develop without capitalism. Like maybe it's maybe it's the case. I don't think it is, but maybe it's the case that capitalism kind of got us to where we are and we needed that kind of transition period. 
but we are here now. And so now we have to defend why we continue to split the pie so unevenly. Do we need to continue to do that? And I don't think there is an argument for that, except that it's what we know and we can only do what we do with what we know. But there are arguments, there are examples of people working differently. As we've said, you know, there are, there are all sorts of examples of people who do things for other reasons other than kind of financial gain. There are examples of people working horizontally and democratically. We know that scientific development, artistic creation, we know that hard work, these things are not motivated by money exclusively. Very often they're not motivated by money at all. We know that nurses work, we know that artists create, we know that inventors invent, we know that scientists discover without any need for financial gain. So we have to start thinking, well, could actually, could we develop a system that would work without the, 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 the incentives that were supposedly necessary for, for these things to happen without the, the hierarchies that are supposed to happen? We have the empirical evidence that all of the things that people say capitalism is necessary for can happen without capitalism. So then, then it becomes, well, why, why do we keep on having that inequality? Why do we, if it's not necessary? And then you get to, to your final question is, well, is it fair? We are there now. So is it fair? We've got that inequality. Can we, you know, is it fair to kind of reappropriate someone's business that they've worked for? I know the answer to that is broadly yes. I mean, it has to be done sensitively and it has to be done in a way that's not going to just create another another kind of trajectory, another cycle of oppression and violence and hierarchy. And we obviously saw that classically, you know, after the, the Russian revolution. And it's a very, very kind of tricky road to kind of navigate. But ultimately, anyone who's got any, any real wealth, you know, anyone who owns several houses, they've not done it because they just worked so hard. And anyone who makes that argument has to answer how it is that someone who clearly has worked just as hard as that person doesn't have those things. How a nurse who's worked for 30 years and still rents a house doesn't own two houses one of which she rents out to someone else so yeah for me the answer is no one's no one's made any significant amount of wealth and we have to kind of get into that question of what we what constitutes property here and and what you know what we would be talking about we're not talking about appropriating people's toothbrushes and kind of stealing beds from under people's heads but People's businesses, again, have been developed because of the workforce, you know, because of the global workforce, because of the entire social system. No one can, no one can, can become a millionaire without society. And so society, I think, always has that right and that kind of capacity to say, well, actually, we want some of this back now. We want to kind of, we want to change this dynamic. Um, and yeah, clearly, it has to be done in a way that's uh, that's that's appropriate. Um, Renationalising, you know, big large businesses is a really kind of obvious way of of doing it. I don't think anyone really is that interested in 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 going to a an individual who's who's the kind of director of a of a 
of a business with 30 employees and saying, you, you know, you need to, you need to kind of give that all up. Like there's, there's, there's much, much bigger fish to fry. And actually, once you, once you start to do that and you change that kind of that upper system, then a lot of those things would start to develop themselves. And actually what you would start to do is you'd have businesses then with a hundred employees and one person taking 90% of the profit and those, you wouldn't need to reappropriate that business. The, the hundred employees would just say, well, see you later. You know, if this is all your, you know, this is all your money, you made it yourself. You keep doing that. Good luck. We'll go off and, you know, we'll get some loan stock and we'll set up our own business doing what we've been doing. And that person will very quickly realize actually they didn't make that money themselves. They made it with the employees. Um, so you would you know you would you would start to shift that position and get to that position where which which you know that kind of classic liberal position where you say people have got a choice and people have got freedom and the idea would be to actually make that a genuine choice and a genuine position of freedom which people don't have at the moment because of that incredible inequality that just that just holds power in in place and prevents prevents that kind of that dispersal of power. I want to perhaps close the door now on the on the critiques. I think it's much more interesting to talk about the limitations. But before I do that, I just want to share a few uh, anecdotes. Um, well, there's a TED talk um, by I forget the psychologist's name now, but he he did some research with Monopoly and you mentioned Monopoly and you might've seen this, uh, but he, he showed that if you give people you know, extra money at the start, which is basically how society works, right? Inheritance, uh, having a high IQ, I get to, I get to, I get to beat you at uh, the game of life. And so, or certainly the game of acquiring resources, more resources, more money. So he said, you know, when you give people this head start in the Monopoly board game and they, he filmed them, he said, you actually see that they internally justify this as the game goes on, they totally forget that they had you know an extra five hundred um, you know pounds of fake money, and they actually <laughs> they get more aggressive. So they start slamming the uh, the pieces on the board. It's like oh, I've just rolled another six. Like, I think they get an extra roll as well. It's like I'm destroying you. Bang! You know, give me more money. And it's hilarious just to see this transformation. And uh, this goes into this really interesting idea in uh, psychology called system justification justification theory, where people do internalize the head start they had. It's really hard to get people to reflect on this stuff. So that's one thing. And then Louis C.K., the uh, American comedian, has this great line where he's, he's telling the story about how I think he, he brings one of his uh, um, friend's nieces you know, from, from uh, the countryside to Manhattan for the first time, and they get off at you know, uh, Central Station in, in New York. And she sees a homeless person. Like she'd never, never seen a homeless person before. This guy's begging for money. And she runs up to him and says, Oh my God, sir, are you okay? Like this disheveled guy with a beard and he's pissed himself. It's like, what's wrong? Oh my God, like, is there anything that I can do to help? Um, and uh, Usei Kei says, No, what are you doing? Don't do that. Like, he, 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 you know, the idea is that it's totally normalised, right? He's like, he's meant to be there. Like, what, what are you doing? Like, he, he could have a knife. You, are you crazy? Can I, can you help him? Obviously, what, what are you doing? This is mental. And then he's got this other line um, about capitalist normalisation, where he says, isn't it a bit weird? I'm probably butchering the joke. But he says, isn't it a bit weird that when you've got no money, the bank says, I'm going to have to charge you 
because you've got no money. You've gone, you're overdrawn. So you're going to have to face a penalty there. Oh, you've got no money. Let's take some more of your money. And then when you've got a lot of money, they give you more money. Here's some interest. What a weird way for society to work, that you get rewarded for being rich and punished for being poor. Um, So I think that kind of gone. Just to come back quickly on the, you know, you kind of obviously for for kind of rhetorical purposes, you know, you have this this idea of the, the the liberal responses and kind of contra the anarchist responses, but I think you know the, there's obviously a huge kind of spectrum in between, and and there are just so many there are so many examples of how unequal and how ridiculous our society is, and how it consistently favours the the people in in front already you know i mean uh, an example we were talking about this my friend the other day how if you if you want to buy a house obviously that's you know it's becoming a, a quite a talking point at the moment very very difficult if you haven't got the money to buy a house even if you've got you can have a you know a permanent job you can have what 20 30 years ago would have made you in perfectly eligible to, to to kind of get onto the into the property ladder as they call it horrendously um to buy a house but it's becoming increasingly difficult to do that but let's say i get a mortgage i manage to to get myself a mortgage and buy a house for 200 grand the chances are the kind of mortgage that i'm going to get i'm going to pay something like 300 grand for that house if i've got 200 grand in the bank because my mum and dad gave it to me I can buy that house for 200 grand now it's that's really really obvious but that effectively means that houses are 50% cheaper for rich people than they are for poor people I mean that's you know putting it very kind of crudely but if you if you say it like that if you said to someone we're going to have a society where houses are cheaper for rich people than they are for poor people no one would defend that but that is that is the outcome of the the the, the capacity to have yeah. money up front. Can I, can I just say that obviously people would defend it, right? They would say that you want to say that I can't pass my property and my resources on to my children, right? One of the principles of a free democratic state is that they do not tell me that I can't educate my children how I want to. They do not tell me that I can't. Um, you know what 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 pe- people often work shitty jobs their entire life, especially men, right, especially men, just to support their family. And now you're going to take, take that away from me or you're going to heavily tax it. Well, they, they do might, defend it. Well, they might defend, they might defend the, the reality that leads to that, but the principle that it, you're, you're charging less for a house if you're poor. Right. Because like you said, there's, because there's also what, what makes that argument powerful, the argument that, that you know, the... The idea that you just defend, not you defend it, but someone to defend that. What 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 makes that argument powerful? What makes that argument powerful is I earn that money. That's that's where the power lies. I earned it, and therefore I deserve it. But what you're then doing is just saying I earned it. I deserved it. No one can take it away. And then I'm going to give it to someone else who didn't earn it, who didn't deserve it. And in doing that, I'm going to produce a social relation that is inherently unjust and it's going to reproduce itself. And, and it becomes very, very difficult to, 
and it is very difficult to, to argue if you you know if you say you've earned something and therefore you can't give it away but you can I think you still can make that argument to say well did you earn it how did you earn it you know what why do you have this money in the first place and actually was it you know because this person here worked just as hard and this person here has worked twice as hard and this person here has been trying to work but can't so they're all in position but they don't have the same kind of amount of money as you so you can kind of challenge that in a kind of empirical basis but I think in the yeah I think anyway what I was getting to was just this this kind of point that there are so many things and obviously a lot of anarchists would kind of you know, dismiss a lot of these kind of concerns as, as kind of mere, mere reformism. But when we talk about capitalism or anarchism, we have to remember it's a kind of gamut of, of, of issues. And where we are now, there are just so many individual, even before you break down capitalism as a whole, there are so many, so many micro discourses, micro, you know, laws, institutions, habits, customs that, you know, individually are hugely problematic that you can just start to pick away with and and what a liberal position generally is is kind of let's you know let's defend this kind of thing like you say let's try and defend a bit better tax but forget that there are tax havens forget that that never seems to quite work you know so you kind of present these vague little ideas of oh let's just make it a little bit a little bit kind of nicer but forgetting that you know, because there are so many of them, actually, if you take away one thing, you kind of, you leave so many in place. Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. Um, I think um, it, it's just useful for people to perhaps Google a phrase here, if you're listening, uh, really existing capitalism, I think Chomsky coined it. But the, the idea is that all these, let's face it, bullshit thought experiments, which retroactively justify the system that we have, which I think is incredibly inefficient, right? One of the arguments that capitalists make, and Graeber pointed this out in uh, The Utopia of Rules, is that it's not it's not efficient, right? Bullshit jobs, the bureaucracy that inevitably piles up, right? Um, how many people you need to sort out the paperwork when you hire one person, it generates even more people. Capitalism is not efficient. Uh, well, no, capitalism is efficient if you actually had capitalism, but what we have is really existing capitalism with all its internal contradictions. Um, and there are lots of things that you can say about that, and the rich people getting discounts on their houses is just one contradiction of um, really existing capitalism. Um, something else that's worth pointing out here is uh, Toby Young's dad, Michael Young, that coined the, the phrase meritocracy uh, from uh, that satire that he wrote. Um, I think he had a great line uh, that David Goodhart points out in his latest book, which is, if, you, if you're for meritocracy, right, because it has this intuitive appeal, right, people deserve what they, if you put in a lot of effort, you should get some um, differential reward there. Fine, start there. If you're for that, then wait until the children of the people who get those rewards, like you say, inherit them unfairly. Right? Are you, you might be for people getting just desserts, but you're not for their children getting it. And that inevitably happens if you have a system based on not even neoliberalism, but just capitalism, really. Um, unless you really just abolish inheritance tax, um, we can talk talk about, I guess, more like Silicon Valley solutions like universal basic income. But all of them are kind of dancing around the edges and putting, uh, you know, a thousand appendages in um, a hosepipe that sprung a million leaks, right? Um, so 
yeah, I think I think we should always focus on the system how it is rather than the idealized um, version of capitalism. Although it might, might be useful to get into that discussion with uh, the more you know educated capitalists who would say actually you can solve a lot of these issues with proper capitalism. Um, uh, maybe there's there, there's something to be said about some of those solutions being um, you know, adequate under um, uh, you know, a more market based system. Who knows? Um, Okay, so let's let's. I think we, we we've closed the door to the the traditional critiques. Um, if you have any more critiques, I guess put them in the comments below, and we can um, we can address them there. Let's talk about the more diff difficult terrain, difficult for many reasons, um, uh, of the limitations of the anarchist approach. I say one reason is difficult is because um, think. Perhaps this is unfair, but uh, I think a lot of anarchists, especially online, you know, on the anarchism subreddit, the people who tend to comment, right, so it's a self-selecting bias, they've got to be careful because this is people who, are, who already feel uh, aggrieved, you know, trigger happy. Um, they tend to, in my experience, be the apotheosis of Jonathan Haidt's idea of intuition or instinct first, rationality and reasoning second. Right, so they, they have that libertarian impulse for freedom, and then anything. Right, so you get this all the time with identity politics. So I just posted me and my my most recent video on um, how AI is now able to determine your political ideology from just scanning your face with seventy two percent accuracy. I uh, posted this on the anarchism subreddit, and the amount of comments <laughs> that were referencing um, this is just modern day phrenology. Obviously, they've not watched the video, they've not read the papers, they've got no idea what they're talking about. Um, you know, this bleeds into, I guess, people that will call themselves radicals, um, but are actually just, in my view, reactionaries when you mention anything to do with um, how hierarchy is obviously an inevitable part of human nature. Um, but we can deal with it as anarchists more adequately if we you know, offer a proof of justification. But if you know anything about biology, if you know anything about intelligence, right, uh, you know that we can't do away with these things. Um, and we wouldn't want to either. Um, but you bring that up, and Im immediately the word um, eugenics gets raised in uh, anarchist circles. Um, so it, it is difficult to talk about the limitations of anarchism. In fact, when I posted request for questions for this interview on the anarchism subreddit, it got loads of upvotes, but the comments were people saying, I've not read the book, but I guarantee you it's going to be a book of straw men. They have no idea who you are, right? <laughs> um, and, and that's, I think, the response from the more vociferous reactionary crowd who, in my opinion, I don't think you can really call yourself an anarchist if you've not got that mentality of uh, you know, radical openness um, or just questioning you know, self-scrutiny, questioning the fact that it is difficult if you're going to commit yourself to this amorphous concept of freedom to think about where your freedom starts and another person's freedom ends. You give these great anecdotes in the book about um, you know, people who say in anarchist kind of a temporary autonomous zones, as they're called, right, where we're trying to... Um, experiment with anarchist organization people who say with no hint of irony this is a space for everyone these people need to get out <laughs> right and you can understand that in one way right because if those people are rapists then fuck them right but those are, those are obvious cases there are edge cases right one example might be uh, what if women decide that we don't want trans women in women only spaces that's a difficult case right what if we don't want unisex you know or, uh, bathrooms this is a women's only space, a women's refuge, for example. Okay, we 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 respect trans people totally, 
but they can't come in. You've seen this with the Olympics, right? And Lauren, Laurel, Laurel Hubbard, right? Um, should they be able to compete? Right? Even just using the word they there, you know, people will be like, oh, you're, you're, you're othering them. It's very hard to have these discussions, especially, I guess, now more than ever. Um, so I guess perhaps before we get into the actual substantive limitations, what do you feel nowadays about just the ability, kind of this meta question, the ability to even talk about it? Do you, do you sense it's hard? Do, in your own activist spaces, do you, do you think that there is um, plurality of opinion that people don't pounce on someone for saying the wrong thing? I think it varies. I think it varies from space to space. And I don't, I mean, this is a bit of a kind of cliched response maybe, but I, I don't spend a lot of time on the internet. Um, or certainly not that internet. I'm not on Twitter. Um, I'm not on. I'm not on Reddit. Um, and I think, you know, the the internet does seem to be a a particularly kind of easy space for for kind of confrontation. I think there's always been confrontation within within social movements within society. Um, so I think this this may, and I also think that the 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 idea that we live in this very censorious culture is is very much um a gift to the right and has been perpetuated by the right which doesn't mean it's again not to kind of to to assume that therefore there's, there's no kind of merit in that but i think you know there's this there's a huge amount um you know this idea that you know of kind of cancel culture of people being kind of forbidden to, from speaking on university and if you look at the figures actually it's incredibly small um and they're you know and generally people who who already have an incredible voice um and you know people haven't asked the same questions the media haven't kind of got into a kind of uh, a frenetic um period of, of anxiety uh, politicians haven't done the same when you know when people weren't able to speak because uh, for, for, for countless other reasons so I think there's a yeah I think we have to be very careful about assuming too much um, because clearly the the right are playing into this idea of of there being this kind of censorious new new movement of identity politics that, that kind of cancels everything out and political correctness has always been weaponized by the right um and and it forgets how much it you know it forgets that, that, that there's a battle there um and the reason you have those kind of identity politics is because people themselves have been cancelled and people's identities have been cancelled and negated um so yeah, I don't, I don't know, I don't know if, I mean, there are, there are hot topics. I think there probably always have been hot topics that have kind of divided movements. Um, and my, my kind of, I suppose one of my aims or hopes is, is to always try to not be divided by the right and not let the right win in that kind of tactic. I think the trans issue is, has divided communities at the moment um i think this yeah there seems to be kind of people who i mean i know that the anarchist book fair was was as i think it might have kind of come back now but it was basically um that certainly the london book fair stopped stopped running for a few years um 
because of because of kind of debates within around the kind of trans question um but i i think i think that's that's sad and regrettable when people who you might think are kind of comrades can't agree but i think it's dangerous to dangerous to kind of deny difference and say we should just all get on you know i think it's 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 okay to have disagreements and it's okay to to kind of disagree to the point where you feel like it's not okay to kind of you know dislike someone or or, or feel agitated you know i think there's there's something about you know the, the liberal position is to kind of push all that down and say these are private issues don't bring this to the fore but i think actually you know in order to challenge society you do need to kind of create those kind of conflicts so i don't think we should be too worried about those kind of arguments heating up and we should look at the bigger picture and try to hold on to you know try not to be divided by the hegemony by the right um but also not not work to to kind of smooth over those conflicts because actually what you what you do when you smooth over is always one side saying you know you need to you need to kind of stop your you know stop creating the fuss stop creating the conflict and and kind of come into the fold which always which is always a process of silencing um so yeah i'm not i'm not i'm not overly concerned i know it's i know it's unpleasant um and certainly unpleasant when you're kind of caught in it personally or you know online or whatever but i think i think there's a degree of which to which it's been it's been overemphasized and people are people feed off it and there's some pretty kind of torrid right-wing populism that's kind of feeding off that that idea that you know that we're all just cancelling each other so let's talk about the substantive issues that you address this is the 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 limitations that you talk about in the book um and perhaps any that you've thought about now um, I want to start with this idea that uh, anarchists have, again, for people that aren't aware. Um, if you talk about the possibilities of anarchism, uh, I mean, in fact, David Graeber wrote an essay uh, called Are You an Anarchist? The Answer May Surprise You. It's just a one-page essay. Um, and that really, for me, encapsulates a lot of what um, anarchists talk about when they say that anarchism already exists. Colin Ward famously said it's, it's like a seed beneath the snow, I think, seed beneath the surface. Um, the uh, Gustav Gustav Landau quote um, is often um, was the most popular quote that anarchists use. Certainly, anarchist academics, uh, where he says, uh, "The state." You'll be able to correct me if I get this wrong. Uh, the state is a uh, relationship amongst people, right? And it's it's change. I'm obviously not uh, quoting it verbatim, but that uh, relationship can be changed by relating to each other differently. That's fundamentally what the state is. Um, uh, so the, the the this meme in anarchist uh, theorizing and even in um, movements is that actually we only have to you know Chomsky talks about this like we only have to strip away the surface to realize that actually there's there's anarchism waiting to flourish. Right, like that seed beneath the snow. But something you say 
in the book, in fact, I'm going, going to read it out, is that this is not as simple as that. You say the, the view that anarchism already exists and has indeed always existed is extremely important to the anarchists and has helped shape anarchist thought in a very particular way. However much people may bemoan the lack of philosophical justifications and explanations for anarchist ideas, such critiques are likely to fall on de deaf ears. Go ahead and make your theoretical critiques, anarchists will respond. Anarchism already exists all around us. We do not need to explain or define or defend it. We just need to look for it. Viewed this way, anarchism is not so much a theory at all, but a practice which people have been engaged in throughout our history, and which, in increasingly rare circumstances, people still engage in. As we shall see, this view has been fundamental in shaping the continuing focus of anarchist thought, but it has done so much, uh, but it has done so as much by influencing what is not said as what is. So, do you want to talk about this idea that actually uh, there's more to the notion is is quite problematic uh, that anarchism already exists. I mean, that to, to me, that's that's always been really problematic. Um, you know, a classic example used to used to be often that um, the anarchists would give was you know some friends go on a camping trip and you know and they kind of they they decide where to go and where to put up their tent collectively and they don't need the state and they don't need a hierarchy. And I always just think that's such a such a problematic and you know ridiculous kind of argument on so many levels. Um, and just one of them is a, you know a liberal would say, yeah, of course that's you know that's that's what liberals would think as well. Liberals would say that you know, and capitalists would say, yeah, of course you, you get on and you decide your camping trip together, but we need these other things for for society. And David Graeber, um, kind of slightly reluctant to to be too harsh. Given his his very sad recent recent um, passing, but I've I have to I have to confess I've never never been a, a big fan, and I, I I don't think he never really understood apart from him just being incredibly prolific and and detailing. And I think actually probably no, I'm going to leave that. I'm going to leave that. Um, but I never never really thought of him as a particularly kind of interesting thinker. He did a very good job of kind of detailing the early kind of social movement scene and seems to have kind of been catapulted into this position where people maybe have looked to him for kind of theoretical answers, but I don't think he did that particularly well. And one one kind of contradiction is, you know, he talks about the violence inherent in the state. And, you know, he, he one of one of his kind of the bees in his bonnet was the kind of Foucauldian left as he as he kind of saw it and talked about this, this idea that, you know, Foucauldians, what, what Foucauldians forgot in their construction of power and social relations and power being very dispersed was that behind that supposedly dispersed post-structural power, there was always the policeman's club as he, as he kind of talked about it. And, you know, he said, you know, anyone, any kind of post-structuralist trying to get into a library to read Foucault without their university card would suddenly kind of come against a very real form of violence. And we have to remember that critique, and I don't agree with his critique of post-structuralism, but we have to, we, the, the logic of that is very important when we're thinking about how people behave now in our society. And so we talk about people acting like anarchists or anarchistically within the world we have, but the state is there, capitalism is there, 
and we can't we can't at one point refer to it and say it's there it's violent and that has an impact and then in the next breath kind of argue that people are acting anarchically and forget then the state because the state's there and we don't know how we would behave ultimately if the state suddenly crumbled or disappeared so i think it's very it's problematic for many many reasons but i think we can't we can't look at the way humans are behaving in a in a social center or even a worker co-op or whatever and say look they're they're working outside of capitalism they're working outside of the state we can you we can explore them and, and i and i'm i'm a massive fan of 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 those experiments and working with those things but we can't say that they exist independent from the social relations around them um landau's quote is the state is a social relation and we destroy it by creating new ones i think and we and and there's a beautiful truth in that but also you can never just create new ones you can't just you know we create new ones but they're always connected with the old ones um until you get a, a you know a paradigm shift in society so yeah i think you know and again i, I love colin ward um but there's a fine line between saying look this is how people people can work like this people do work like this and we should encourage it and saying this is anarchism because anarchism is fundamentally a world that's opposed to the state and an anarchist society i think fundamentally has to be one without a state and so you can't really say this is anarchism when you still have that it's like you can't say i'm free soloing this mountain when you've got a safety harness on you know even if you never use it you haven't free soloed right yeah that's a beautiful beautiful image did you just come up with that on the spot yeah <laughs> I like that. Yeah, perhaps, um, perhaps I can kind of, kind of uh, shore it up with an example. Um, so at the moment, if you are injured, you call nine 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 or nine one one, right, in America, um, or one one two, whatever it is in Europe, right. There's something, some someone you can call. Um, it's not immediately clear that uh, an anarchist society where things were decentralized wouldn't be uh, worse or better than that, but it would be different, right. And so. Um, if we were to model healthcare in a, a temporary autonomous zone, it's very hard to extrapolate that to, I don't know, like an anarcho-syndicalist or you know, a more federalized uh, society and be like, and this is what healthcare will be. And, you know, we're, um, I think there are some things you can say, right? I think something like the bystander effect might start to dissipate in communities that respected like Dunbar's number of 150 people maximum so that you, we can know each other and have respect because I, I know who you are, I know your face. Um, but beyond, I mean, even that's speculative, and, and beyond talking about removing the alienation that uh, Results in perhaps the uh, the anonymity um, and and in, and, in, and an increased um, prevalence of you know the the bystander effect. You see someone run over, you think, okay, well, someone someone will call nine nine nine. And one of the most famous examples I think is given in the book Freakonomics, where they talk about the rape of 
oh, I forget her name, Kitty Genovese. Kitty Genovese in New York, a famous case, I think, in the 90s or something, where someone you know, in a whole, a whole neighborhood heard this woman being raped for like an hour or something, and nobody did anything because, you know, living in this fractured, alienated landscape where you think that, oh, well, someone will do something, someone will check it out. And of course, if everyone thinks that, nobody does. Um, it's an interesting, uh, there's an interesting podcast uh, called You're Wrong About, which dissects that you, sh- you should listen to, because that that case, again, you know, it, it, nothing, nothing's ever as simple. I do, I do think there, are, you know, there, there is that, um, there is that element of society that's, that's become disenfranchised we've become very atomized and it's but it's interesting also that the kind of the anarchist kind of lives in a constant tension um because on the one hand you want the anarchist kind of points to the 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 negative impact of capitalism and the, you know the society we live in and wants to kind of critique that and does critique it but also wants to kind of hold on to humanity's capacity to to kind of continue being actually quite decent and sociable and kind and caring um and actually that that um this kind of bystander effect again is something that has been weaponized by the right and there's this so so one one of the components of that story which is kind of left out is that it was a it was a broadly kind of gay neighborhood and people were you know this is a this was in a period where the new york police were routinely going into to bars where they were known as, as gay bars and, and, and beating people and arresting people. And lots of people in this neighborhood were scared of calling the police. It's also the case that actually, it's funny you kind of mentioned the, the 999, they didn't have, no, there, was, there was no emergency number. Um, at that stage. So now we, we kind of retell it. No one called 911. No one could have called 911 because we didn't, they, they didn't have 911. You would call, uh, and actually not everyone had a phone um, at that, you know, in 1970. It was quite common to not have a phone. So there's lots of reasons why that story is, is, is not so clear cut. But, but the, the, the basic point I think that you're trying to make and I think that is valid is, you know, we have these social relations, we have these behaviours, we have certain ways of relating to one another and to our society. And that will change as social relations change. And we don't know how it will change. We cannot know, like clearly. Um, but what we can, all we can do is say, if we did this, it would probably be better. And if we did this, it will probably be worse. And at the moment we're doing this and it seems to be having this effect or that effect, that this effect, and we don't like it, so let's try this. Yeah, one of the, I, I think I do remember actually listening to that podcast on the nuances of the Kitty Genovese case, so thank you for reminding me about that. Um, one of the things I was speaking to a friend about the other day was uh, marriage. I think this is quite an interesting idea. Of like, you know, it's, it is uh, a bit crazy that you think, oh, we're in love, let's get the government involved. And especially if you're a man, right, nowadays where, you know, if you're, if you're the, still the breadwinner and you, um, the, we, we know the way that the family court system works. Um, so, you know, the, the woman can simply turn around and say, I was scared, and the man is, like, kicked out 
right? Uh, the, you know, men do not have adequate access to their children um, often. Um, if, if they've earned all the money, the, it can just be immediately split and you might have to take care of the uh, lifestyle that the woman, the, the wife has become accustomed to. So really we've set up, and conservatives kind of you know, often make this uh, these cases as well, right? Like Pete Hitchens says, the British state has done everything in its power to undermine marriage. Um, and so I was talking about like what, what marriage would look like in a different type of society where you didn't want to get, get the state involved. And of course, it's hard to talk about this because we live in a very alienated, atomized world where, look, I don't want to get the state, if I ever get married, I don't want the state involved, right? For the pragmatic reasons that I mentioned already, but also because I think it is totally bizarre to say, it's a kind of infantile in a way, to say, let's get men ultimately with guns involved to enforce the contract if it breaks down. I think that doesn't encourage the healthy relationship between you and your couple that you want, you and your partner that you want to aspire to. You want to be people who can work on, you, you're, you're in a shared project, something greater than yourself. And obviously if you have children involved, that is uh, kind of what marriage is meant to be there for. You make this commitment in front of friends and family to uh, work on something that's really, really difficult. Now that doesn't mean that you can't have mediators involved, but it means that the mediators won't have a club, right? And especially for men nowadays, a club that often means they come off the worse when a marriage unfortunately does break down, which is 50% or 45% of marriages last time I checked, right? And even worse for the working class, right? That those are what the, they, they often end in divorce and uh, marriage seems to be uh, a, a good way for uh, you know, middle-class people to accrue even more privilege and, and wealth and resources. Actually, it's true for the working class too. Um, uh, men, for example, who are married tend to earn more and uh, you know, have better, better mental health, better physical health, because the wife kind of, in a you know, traditional heterosexual relationship, tends to say, you should go to the doctor, and the man tends to say, oh, it'll be fine, right? So it seems to be a good, good thing to do. But it is hard to talk about how that relationship looks different, because fundamentally, what, what, what is also going to be different is we're not going to hopefully live in um, very alienated societies where the community can't kind of um, help you to fulfill your obligations and commitments to the other person, right? So if you do want to say right now, I don't want the state involved because it's kind of a bit wacky to me to have people with clubs and guns enforcing uh, contracts. I mean, if you, if you, as as you previously said, alluding to something else, if you need that, why, why do you want to marry this person? Like, do you, do you, do you not trust them? So it's kind of a, it's a wacky premise and. Um, as I've said previously, actually, I think it's Derek Jensen, the way propaganda works is that if you can slip the premises by people, you've got them. So let's just take a step back and look at that. Um, but we're also talking about moving to a society where we don't have the types of, uh, where, where we, sorry, where we do have the types of communities that help you to come together, right? Why, why do marriages fall apart? Like, as you say, let's look at really existing capitalism. Let's look at the situation. Well, often, so most is working class people, it's because of finance. Finance is the number one reason. Well, that's a huge thing that we can solve, right? If we distribute things more equally and give people access to things like counsellors. You know, I think that everybody should have free marriage counselling and um, you know, access to professionals that know how, um, how basically you shouldn't raise children. You know, things to avoid, right? Um, that could stop a lot of trauma being passed down. And so it's not easy to just say, okay, well, let's just get rid of the, the let's just get married, but do a, you know, a kind of a ceremony, not have the state involved, and things will automatically be better. 
They probably won't, because unfortunately, when we talk about the lowest common denominator of you know, people's psyche, actually, people do tend to like structure, whether that is the capitalist structure right, of, you know, you do a nine to five, you get up, you do what the boss says, um, and in a marriage, well, let's make the costs, the consequences that brutal so that you, you know, the, the, the traditional de debate about no-fault divorce, so that you don't leave your wife and you stay together for the children, okay? It's not optimal, but it's better than nothing. And, and I, I feel that's such an unimaginative way of looking at the world. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there, and I think it's a, it's a kind of interesting example of, of the kind of complexities of social relations and, and the, the challenges that you have or that we might have in, in rethinking society. So one response would be, you know, well, any, any sort of monogamous heteronormative relationship is, you know, is just part of the patriarchy, part of the state, and we should reject it. Um, and another kind of, maybe the other end of that spectrum is, well, no, we want to kind of, there's nothing wrong with monogamous heteronormative relationships um but we don't want the state to sanction them so i you know i know i know quite a few anarchists who've had like hand fasting ceremonies or you know some kind of some kind of communal i've had a bit one of you know i, I still remember a wedding a wedding in inverted commas that i went to some some anarchist friends of mine and we we occupied a petrol station we closed closed the petrol station down some some people kind of locked themselves to the to the pump some people got on the roof uh, because it was, you know, it was all people who were who were doing that sort of thing, um, and they had this ceremony in this closed-down petrol station, and that was, you know, there was something really beautiful about that. And I think it it kind of, I don't, I, I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't want to even have a ha kind of hand fasting ceremony. But it it was interesting in you know how you can kind of subvert things and play things but also reclaim things like marriage you know marriage is now like an institution of the state and it's an uh, institution of religion but it existed prior to you know christianity it existed prior to the state um so sometimes people will say you know why why would you want to do that it's 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 the state but actually you can go back further and say well no this is something that that humans have probably done for for for, for millennia in some way some kind of ceremony to show something um about a kind of relationship but then you can critique that as well and you can say well you know why why would we want that why would we want a monogamous relationship why would we want people two people to kind of come together and stay together for the rest of their lives and what becomes problematic is when people start to kind of get into a very particular camp and dismiss dismiss anything. Uh, my my view is always, you know, let's always be critical. Let's think. Certainly, you know, why why would you want the state to get involved? Why would you want the state to say, "Well done, you're in love." Um, and yeah, you, you you phrased it kind of very very nicely. Like, well, why would you want some? Effectively, the, the 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 you know the mechanics of the state is 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 the is the tank and the you know the power and obviously no one really thinks about it like that but you are kind of in a way saying we want this big army to kind of sanction our loving beautiful relationship and it is very very odd when you put it like that um, but you know for me in rejecting that 
you, you know, you need to kind of tread carefully and you need to recognize as well that we're as human beings, we're socialized and we can't just, we cannot just kind of click our fingers and, and, and kind of run away from or negate that socializing. And that's one of the problems with any kind of revolution and any revolutionary position is is how you how you kind of deal with that how you navigate that kind of socializing and one of the errors i think that's kind of common is for people to just think i've now got this different rational position and so i'm going to live like this but i'm going to be constantly conflicted because i've been socialized like this so i'm you know i'm going to become polyamorous and 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 that that's that's that and and i'm going to negate all these kind of socializing things but you don't want to go the other way and say, well, no, we've been socialized, so we shouldn't be doing that. You know, we should be encouraging experimentation. We should be encouraging critical thought. We should be thinking, as you said, you know, more and more kind of counseling, but in a very broad sense, not just counseling to defend a marriage, to keep people together, but counseling in a, on, a, on a social level to say, well, what, what, what do we want? You know, we've got kids but we don't like each other anymore. So what do we want? What's the happiest outcome out of this thing? What, you know, it's definitely not good for kids to, to kind of keep people together for the sake of it. Um, and there's no, there's no kind of natural reason why two people should spend their entire lives together, even if they've got children. So it's, it's yeah, it's, it's kind of counseling, but in a broader sense of, of thinking about, thinking through those possibilities, but recognizing that we cannot just, we cannot just say we critique this social system and we're going to do things differently. And in the same way that you can't forget the reality that, you know, of, of the state behind you, you can't forget the reality of the state inside you um, and the way that that impacts on us. Perhaps we should, um, continue with the the line uh, about children and kind of social relationships being uh, difficult terrain um so let's imagine we live in like this federated anarchist country right we're still gonna have countries because you know want to cheer on the england football team got to win the world cup eventually uh so we live in england and uh but, it, but it's, it's it's federated right so we kind of live in our, our you know, local communes um and they all work on different principles and people move um from uh locality to you know localities to, to find the the one that fits for them and uh, perhaps some are even you know more capitalists right they're more market lines some people just want to do a job and be remunerated for it so they agree uh to to work for someone and then others are like more anarcho-communists and there's a great clarity but it's all you know works on that kind of anarcho-syndicalist principle that people are ultimately recallable to the commune from which they originate and everything has to be ratified by a two-thirds majority and blah 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 blah, blah. it's very sophisticated organization and automation does most of the work and work that isn't automated is either shared or people are uh, paid better for it, right? Very sophisticated organization, techno-anarchism. Um, fine. What do you do, right, when you have people making objectively bad decisions? So if you have, um, well, let's, let's tread on some politically incorrect ground, right? Let's talk about a community of uh, ultra-religious people, whether they're Christian zealots or uh, Muslims, and they... Um, have a totally different view of how to raise children, right, and women's place in society. Um, 
and they've got their own commune, right? Um, so we, we take the, I guess the the boroughs of London where you know, large, large immigrant populations, and they segregate off, and London kind kind of becomes like this uh, anarchist city. Um, but if you go into Hackney now, you see that women are veiled. Right, and um, I don't think it is sufficient to be. It's almost like a liberal response, but I think you'll find it in anarchist circles of, oh, women choose to do that. I mean, this is a get out of jail free card for me, right? Um, also, the most difficult. I say also, this is the actual meat of the question. What do you do when there are children being raised in that situation? Right, you can you can play that card, and you can say uh, it's a very weak card. It's like, oh, some women choose to, you know, wear black polyester um, clothing that cover, you know, all body clothing in a hundred degree heat, right, in the, in the desert, right, some people choose that, sure, right, the same, same way that some people choose to work in sweatshops, fine, um, but what do you do when the children are affected, and how does, how, how would an anarchist society deal with this? How would an anarchist dis uh, society deal with children who are in dysfunctional relationships, you know, where, where there's no centralized body that can take them into care? And let's, you know, let's also grant the traditional anarchist response of, yeah, but the system right now is shit. Like how children in care are, it's one of the worst things you could possibly be. If you look at the life outcomes for children in care, it's awful, right? They end up as prisoners. They end up mentally, um, you know, with huge mental illnesses. Um... Again, that is, as you say in the book, it's a get-out-of-jail-free card to just say, but things are bad now, they'll inevitably be better under this system. That's not clear. So I think childcare and children as the, as the victims of some oppressive community, um, which doesn't see itself as, impress as oppressive, but from a, uh, an Enlightenment perspective, um, we, we could say that's not how we would want to live. And I think if you had a... Um, yeah, a freer socialization, you wouldn't have picked that either. And the children certainly can't pick it. What do we say? I think, I mean, I'd, I'd start by kind of stepping back and saying, I think one of the, one of the problems with an anarchist, I think would often say that they don't make this mistake, but I think, I think they often do. One of the problems with kind of political philosophy or moral philosophy is we, we start by saying, what's the right answer? That's our kind of that's our kind of basic question to any any kind of position. What is the right answer? And I I always think the first question we should ask is: Is there a right answer? Is there a way of answering this that's going to be satisfactory that we're going to think is right? And I think actually there's a, there's there's a, a a need for and no no ideology wants to do this for for obvious reasons because you know. You, you're, you're, there's a competition going on, isn't there? Obviously, that you need to you need to prove that you can you can create the better society than the next ideology. So no ideology wants to say in the same way that no politician wants to say I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know what I would do. Um, yeah, you're right. That that's terrible. But what do you do? No politician wants to do that because they need to get elected and no ideology wants to do that because they need to kind of win the argument. But actually, I think the, the reasonable answer would be for an anarchist to say, I don't know what we would do in that situation. And perhaps there's no right answer because clearly you've got a situation that, that many people would consider to be problematic and illegitimate. But part of the kind of nugget of, of the kind of libertarian or liberal or, or kind of freedom-centered approach is to acknowledge that often our attempts 
to to make the world a better place end up making the world a worse place you know going in and and kidnapping the children and bringing them to your society is not is not going to very obviously lead to to a better world even for those children so it's it's complicated and i think we should resist the temptation to say we have the right idea what i argue in the book and i would always argue is that anarchists should yeah should 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 acknowledge that they don't have the answer but also acknowledge that that those kinds of challenges are precisely the kind of challenges that will always exist regardless of you know well unless you have an absolutely you know uniform social order throughout the globe that everyone signs up to you're not you you know any kind of plurality which is what most anarchists would say they want any kind of plurality and diversity is going to lead to those conflicts and so either we either we get rid of that diversity or we accept there's going to be conflict and I, and I think fundamentally too frequently in anarchism you get just a you just get a, a, a denial of that you just get this this view that it won't be a problem you know you either you don't engage with it or if you do you know you, you make some kind of trite response like well it's you know can't be worse than it is now or we'll use consensus decision making or you know whatever whatever it is rather than just saying yeah that would be that'd be really difficult wouldn't it that would be really challenging we don't know what we'll do like you know and the context the context is going to be you know you can have this hypothetical example but are you talking about a community of 400 people absolutely surrounded by communities that don't don't feel the same are you talking about a community of two million people that lives along what one is bordered by one community of as many people who think differently but then bordered by another community on another side who think something differently again you know there are so many variables but even without those just intrinsically that kind of question of how you engage with with particularly how you engage with people people's behavior which you find problematic on their behalf you know that's a really really challenging question you know do you just say well you know you're okay with it ostensibly so i'm gonna you know and like you say it's interesting because there are times when a kind of general left response would be well no women choose to wear the burqa and we can't interfere we can't be the kind of white kind of European liberals that are going to interfere we have to respect their autonomy but they wouldn't make that decision for someone working in the sweatshop um, who might also say well I'm great I'm grateful for the job actually thank you very much I'm, I'm really glad that Nike came here because now I'm getting 50 cents a day and we wouldn't buy that argument we wouldn't accept it but it's it's I think it's having that bravery to saying life is complex and there aren't easy answers all the time and questions of of questions of dealing with other people's other people's positions speaking for other people judging for other people on their making judgments on their behalf is you know it seems to be part of the human picture 
and it's not it's not necessarily wrong and we do it all the time and, and rightly so and that's what political agitation is about isn't it it's saying you know come on wake up unionize agitate organize let's let you know we can we you can do that to to, to someone who's who's a who's a worker in in a factory you can say agitate unionize you can't do that in certain situations or or you know certain certain anarchist cultures or certain leftist cultures will forbid um or encourage the same behavior in different contexts so it's yeah i'm kind of circling around now but i think i think the answer is we don't know what we would do and there's not necessarily a right answer there's certainly not a correct anarchist answer to that question yeah the, the idea that it that any future society is going to make these um is going to be in a position where there are tough calls to be made, I think is encapsulated beautifully. And I don't know if it's your quote, but in the book you say, well, anarchism is life on the slippery slope. When we talk about slippery slope um, fallacies or just like the idea of like, oh, well, this is it's the thin end of the wedge, right? That idea, I don't know if uh, um, this is like a particularly English idiom, but the the idea that actually that just opens the door, right? So slippery slope is going to open the door to tyranny, and that and you say that is what anarchism is, and it's kind of like you need to. Um, it's like the prerequisite for um, freedom is freedom in a way. You need to experiment with. Um, being mature and being able to make these tough calls. And there's no, there's, there's never going to be a right answer to any of these questions. So that brings us on nicely to how anarchists have uh, traditionally uh, gone about decision making and how that's evolved um, to, you know, for example, Occupy, they do you know, the, the wavy hands and consensus. And obviously wavy hands does not scale um, to uh, uh, an entire country, right? Doesn't scale to uh, 350 million Americans. Uh, now that's that's a bit of a straw man because anarchists can turn around and say, "Look, we've got this amazing technology," um, and then I guess a liberal can turn around and say, "What you want to be Switzerland? You know, direct democracy." So there, there's some interesting terrain to navigate here um, in terms of uh, what you see as uh, the philosophical difficulty of consensus decision making whilst totally 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 acknowledging that in many many domains that's going to be a significant improvement on uh, what we have now which is kind of a mirage uh, a sham democracy um yeah yeah i mean there there are you kind of touched on that nicely there there are, there are philosophical issues and there are kind of if you like technical issues um and one, one, of, one of the kind of immediate responses is what we talked about earlier to kind of often, often you'll get a defense of, of one thing with by reference to something else and, and, and a, a, a failure to question whether that thing that this is necessary for is, is itself necessary. So the classic is, you know, that would, you could never use this system of direct democracy in a country of 350 million people and fail to question whether, well, maybe if, if that's the case, then maybe you don't have 350 million people constituencies. You know, you don't have that nation state. You don't have that kind of picture in the same way that, you know, people forget that one of the, you know, probably the most powerful really argument for slavery was 
you know, if we get rid of slavery, we're not going to have all this cheap cotton. And that's, you know, it's a pretty good argument. You're not going to have all that cheap cotton if you don't have slavery. Um, so the, and that, and that argument kind of won out for a very long time. And the argument against that is, well, you know, maybe we have to forgo that cheap cotton. So maybe we have to forgo some of the, you know, the scale um, and the type of, of, of social organization. The, the, two are, the two are entwined, that it's not that one is inevitable. Um, so you're not trying to reproduce the nation state with, with an anarchist kind of decision-making policy. So that's, that's the kind of first fundamental thing. Second point is, I guess, the, that there are kind of technical procedural ways of scaling up massively and, and um, having kind of federations and municipalities. And so there are all sorts of theories and ideas about how you, how you do have confederated, um, you know, you have the, from the, from the neighborhood to the, to the kind of municipality, the city, whatever. Uh, I'm not, I'm not massively interested in those questions because I just think we're, we're, we're you know, we're so far away from, from kind of getting there that, and there's, there's, there are enough, there are enough kind of answers out there at the moment as to how you, how you start kind of creating stronger local democracies, how you kind of empower neighborhoods and cities and towns and so on. Um, and again, you know, it, it will be a process of experimentation and there were lots of people who are far more interested in those things, you know, cybernetics and different, different ways of thinking about complex social relations who could speak far more eloquently than I could. What I'm more interested in is the kind of philosophical kind of questions, if you like. And that's where consensus has always been difficult for me in a challenge, which is that it, it very, very obviously kind of inverts a problem and ends up with a problem, you know? And I always think it was, it's fascinating the kind of how this was, almost entirely overlooked this 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 occupy slogan we are the 99 percent that was that was kind of being articulated at the same time that consensus was really being kind of it obviously didn't come out of occupy but that was maybe its most famous kind of articulation that was most well known we are the 99 percent and we have this decision making power that gives massive power to one percent to less than one percent often and 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 a failure to kind of question whether those two things because effectively you've got a kind of consensus decision making in the world as it is which is like less than one percent blocking decisions for the 99 percent and we think that's shit and we think you know we talk about that as an elite as a as, as a kind of you know a tyranny we, we, we rightly think that that's, that that's wrong, that a tiny, tiny minority of people can, can control uh, the decisions for a majority of people. But in a way, that's, that is a possibility of consensus. Now, the argument, the argument for, for consensus is that that doesn't happen. What you get, you don't have a minority blocking, you have a consensus you have everyone agreeing but the the anarchist blind spot for me was always 
that that's that's an ideal that's the kind of that's what you want to happen and a failure to question how often that was actually happening why it was happening a failure to kind of critically explore you know whether this kind of ideal of everyone agreeing was was a reality and even when and when it was you know again kind of touching on so many questions but just just one of them like why people are consenting you know why people are consenting to work in a sweatshop or people are consenting to to live in a in a kind of patriarchal society what does that consent mean and you know when is consent valid just all these all these kind of questions that it throws up and for me again there's no right answer there's no kind of perfect solution but what troubled me was the the very ideological way in which consensus was just just taken on board by this whole kind of social movement and this anarchist common sense and not critically engaged with not we didn't we didn't question what that meant we didn't question what it would mean when one person blocked and i you know even and even when it went wrong even when it went wrong um people still failed to kind of see the the issues i think but again there was that kind of that that sleight of hand where people would say look it's working we all we all came to consensus and therefore it's going to work in society if you bring 100 people if you bring in 100 anti-capitalist anarchists together in a space to organize a big protest you, you you know you can kind of expect quite a lot of agreement you're already there you're already on the same page you know you kind of you signed up to we're going to do this kind of action and we're this kind of person um and so it's not that surprising that you get consensus about you know the action that you're going to do and so when it did work there was i think there was a lot of ideological work kind of saying look it's worked therefore it's you know it can work in whatever context but even when it didn't work there was a failure to kind of fully acknowledge that and to yeah to to think about it and to think critically so that would that would be my issue is the, the, the you know as a decision making process switching away from simple majority rule switching away from um just that kind of simplistic voting and options on which you vote the dialogue, I suppose, is the fundamental thing that I do hold on to that I think was really important that consensus kind of helps is rather than just you've got options, let's all vote. You, ha you have that attempt to find a kind of common ground. You have that conversation and that's what consensus encourages and that's what we should take away from it, but not necessarily the mechanics of um, and the kind of reduction of consensus being the the only uh, an exclusive kind of decision making procedure um but that conversation is is really important and a really important part of democracy that that kind of yeah maybe now doesn't seem that radical but it still is kind of completely the opposite of what we have now which is you know here are here are two options choose between them and that's your that's your democratic kind of role for the next five years do you want to talk about the contradictions that you see in terms of uh 
punishment, um, what anarchists think about punishment. I mean, you talk in the book, for example, um, are about uh, the Anarchist Manifesto, which I believe is uh, um, a, a popular document online. And you quote the, the Anarchist Manifesto as saying, uh, actions which are unpopular because they are destructive or selfish will cause the person who committed said actions to be exiled from the society of his or her peers. End quote. A few lines later, the anonymous author goes on to claim that, quote, anarchist society does not rely on enforcement or punishment or ba of bad acts. And now, obviously, you say, well, if exile or punishment, um, if exile isn't punishment, then what is it? And uh, if it isn't, you know, if, if there's no enforcement there, then you seem to be playing a bit of a, an odd language game. So do you want to talk about the difficulties of uh, what happens when not the obvious cases of you know rapists infiltrate the the anarchist organization whether this is like you know a temporary autonomous zone or you know actual uh full-blown anarchism right england or scotland has become an anarchist society um so it, you know it, you, you can take both or or just one of them perhaps the latter is the harder but to talk about the difficulties of how you deal with uh the yeah the hard cases that aren't um you know, 95% of people say, yeah, we don't want rapists in this community. But as we said earlier, it could be um, something a lot more polit politically incorrect or just uh, a case where it's not actually clear-cut that someone did commit the crime and yet they're being forced to exile. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think the first thing to do, um, well, probably the first thing to do is, is always the first thing to do is to say is this is going to be complicated. Um, and uh, And the anarchist response is often far too simplistic. But then, then, then the next step, I think, is when you're talking about, broadly speaking, if you, you know, crime, if you want, uh, is, is to separate two, two desires or two demands of society, which are very often completely uh, merged within, within most, most kind of, certainly Western society, which is retribution and prevention. And they're very, very, very different things. Um, and often, not only are they, are they kind of merged, but they're merged in a way that, that can often negate one or the other. And certainly the desire for retribution often negates uh, the desire for prevention. So if, if you, you know, you, you talk about, well, there will be a, a kind of, there's a discourse of, you know, we, we have to, we have to have this kind of prison system, we have this kind of legal system, we have this kind of criminal system, because look at the, look at the kind of harm that this rapist has done or this murder has done. But actually, if you look at the mechanics of, and, and, and the rationale that's being used in response to that, what you're doing very often is you're punishing people you find who've done that in such a way that socially and even individually with that person, you're making it far more likely that that behavior happens again. Um, so, you know, I mean, clearly in, in, in with, the, with the, the, you know, just a very, very kind of obvious, obvious kind of example of that is the prison systems kind of, uh, as such that when you leave you're far more likely to just you know to commit crime again whatever however you're defining crime so there are 
we need first of all to really separate retribution um, with with uh, from, from prevention and classically kind of punishment has has kind of seemed to quite beautifully respond to both those needs because we punish someone really harshly so we get that kind of retribution we get that demand for justice because someone's done something wrong and then they've been punished but that also prevents other people from doing it because they see what it's like to be punished and they're fear they're fearful of that punishment and so they don't do it fundamentally we know that that doesn't work that rationale just fails to fails to work in in lots of lots of cases and that's another primary step is also to think about different types of behavior so talking about you know we talk about crime but even if you talk about something like rape there's very different types of rape and different reasons for rape and if you when you're talking about crime you know hugely hugely various reasons why people act in in ways that society doesn't want them to act um, and there's not going to be the same response at the moment we have a pretty similar response to the vast majority of crimes so you know you commit fraud or you commit rape not entirely there are kind of differences in in, in lots of ways but fundamentally you still kind of become part of this kind of quite uniform legal system and that's clearly problematic because you're dealing with very very different things so you've got to separate out that and then you've got to separate out questions of prevention and retribution i think to to, to to try and kind of lead into some slightly more kind of concrete answers i think retribution is really problematic um i think the desire for for punishment and revenge is is a is a very very dark is a very understandable very understandable desire but i think it will be a it will be a great step forward when our society can kind of can kind of leave that behind in the way we've left some other things behind or or trying to leave some things behind and i think our desire to to kind of punish um and to kind of see that kind of evil in people um it will be a, it will be a real kind of advance for humanity if we can kind of leave that behind because you know and, th and this kind of comes back to what we were just what I was just talking about you know if you think about someone who murders someone or who sexually abuses someone or does something horrendous and then you know the understandable desire to kind of punish that person but if we just stop for a second and think what it is in that person that's made them do that you know you don't you don't need to kind of get and we can do and i think maybe we should do but we don't need to necessarily get into more kind of philosophical questions about free will and so on to just kind of think that person is you know is, is clearly a damaged individual and they've been damaged i mean we know for example that most people and this is a real kind of an interesting paradox within our society you know if you think about that kind of the the, the the hatred of the paedophile and how and the, the 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 monster that they are socially but we know that most paedophiles or most and most people who, who abuse sexually are themselves victims of of some kind of abuse and so you go from you know at one point you're this innocent victim but then the result of what it is that you're the victim of 
turned you into this thing and then you're this vile monster and and you know the tabloid world but it, but you know even the kind of complex social world for most people we can't we we've, we we just drop out that narrative we forget that they're the same person we forget that the the paedophile that we vilify was 30 years ago a, a young child being abused so we need a we need, we need a much more compassionate and a much more rational also response to that kind of retribution um in terms of prevention i think you know again there there is there is this kind of almost feeds into that kind of anarchist argument we, we talked about before of you know it's, it's going to be better in a in an anarchist community but again we look at we look at what kind of creates negative behavior it's it's negative conditions you know it's it's poor social conditions and so the so one of the responses is a more a broader social response to say actually let's get rid of poverty let's get rid of inequality let's you know let's give more of an emphasis to that counseling that we were talking about you know let's let's make that more important than getting to fucking mars in your little spaceship you know let's let's create a world where antagonism and conflict isn't inherent in the system and maybe we'll actually get rid of a lot of the the things that we currently need to prevent through through very kind of individualized legal mechanisms but then there will still be there are still questions then about kind of prevention and and so on and that's where i again i think there are no it, it depends on what whatever we're talking about but i think the anarchist response needs to be more honest to say well there there will be times when we will need to constrain there will be times when we'll make that judgment call and there will be times when that will be wrong you know maybe we will constrain a, an innocent individual and we'll exile them or we'll put them in a thing that we're not going to call a prison because we're anarchists but it will still be a locked facility of some sort you know we will maybe still need to do those things but also maybe we'll do them with more compassion you know maybe we can say we're going to lock you up but we're really sorry but we need to do that in the way you might well in the way classically we've all been doing for the last 18 months you know we've all been locking ourselves up in a prison so that we don't hurt other people and that rationale can be used with someone whose behavior is is problematic and we can say look for the sake of the community we, we're going to need to we're going to need to kind of constrain you in some way but we're not going to hate you and we're not going to vilify you we're not going to call you a monster and we're not going to say this is your punishment we're going to say this is really sad and we're going to make it and we're going to give you counseling and we're going to make things things um as kind of amenable and sociable and progressive and educational and forward-looking as possible but we are maybe going to still have to do that at times yeah so uh, just on the, the prisons thing uh, i think it's uh, always good for people to realize that um America is very bad, right, when it comes to mass incarceration. Uh, the UK is no better. I believe the last time I checked, it costs more to house someone in a UK prison uh, than it does to send them to Eton. Um, is that is that really, as you said earlier, about rich people get a discount, a 50% discount on houses? Is that really, if we just put it to people in those stark terms, how you would like to organise society? Because I personally think that's abhorrent. Um, and 
let's face it, when you go to prison, it's not like you're getting education. In fact, I believe, I think it was Michael Gove, uh, the lovely man that he is, uh, thought, I could be wrong, so I apologize, apologies, Michael, if, it, if it's not you, but I do remember reading about five, six years ago, just an article in uh, like the Evening Standard about how uh, he wanted to, or someone, some Tory wanted to ban books do you, is that do you want them to reoffend? Are we interested at all in recidivism? Because uh, we can we we I could obviously wax lyrical about the double standards and the contradictions between you know working class people doing um, uh, the same drug as uh, David Cameron and Michael Gove uh, obviously have, and uh, yeah, what privilege results in when it comes to uh, either a slap on the wrist or uh, you are basically now barred from any meaningful life in society. You can't get a job, you can't get on the housing ladder, you can't get any type of finance. Uh, it is ludicrous when you put it to people in those terms. And then if you have some training in sociology and psychology and you realise that these people, like in the Monopoly game, were kind of destined to be there. Or you can go the biological route and say, if you've got an IQ of 85, there's not much that you can do within a capitalist society because that tends to correlate with not being able to uh, even write a letter. So do we, do we want to treat these people with compassion, or do we want to just say the game is rigged, there's nothing you can do, the pie gets bigger? Um, I think this is kind of irrational, and it gets to the heart of what people like David Graeber talk, talked about when they said, it's not an efficient system. Um, it has so many internal problems, and you would only not see them if you were socialised from birth to not see them. Um, rant over. Um, Let's get on to audience questions. Uh, I think these, these are really cool. Um, Ines asks, uh, what day-to-day -day practices would you recommend to someone who chooses to exist within hierarchical structures such as the modern work environment and a highly individualistic metropolitan culture? What practices do you recommend people opt into and out from? Um, that's a good question. I mean, it kind of touches on what we, what we talked about in the very kind of early on. Um, the, this kind of question of lifestyle politics and and I, I do I do I do really wish that there could be a more a more kind of radical embrace of of um, for want of a better term lifestyle politics I think it's been kind of it's been sort of abandoned to the kind of transition town liberal terrain and 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 you know kind of gets kind of lumped in with that you know, you're, you know, it, it's just a middle class kind of reformist critique. But, you know, the people who say that are also the people who are happy to kind of quote Colin Ward and Gustav Landauer. And, you know, I think if we think about the state and capitalism as social relations, you know, all we can do is start to kind of create new social relations. And I think things like, you know, cycling, shopping in a local worker co-op, whole food shop, taking your money out of out of the supermarkets and, and, and Amazon and remembering that every time you kind of take something out of that system, you're generally going to be putting it into some other kind of system. It does I understand why people feel that that's kind of just pathetically inadequate. It feels incredibly individualistic, but everything, you know, all social systems are just built on, on a, on a kind of, on individual behaviors. And then, you know, clearly you, you then generate layers and layers of, of embedded social relations, but fundamentally they're kind of reproduced by billions, 
an infinite number of, of actions every day that create these these things and i think really it's not all we can do but fundamentally what we have one one element of what we have to do is 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 try and break that in our own lives and instantly when we do that i think we start to see that we're not just doing that as individuals we are kind of connecting when you cycle you start to think about the the regulations of the road differently you start to think about the the infrastructure differently you think about the the codes and you know the unwritten codes and the and the and the kind of written codes differently when you shop in a whole food shop that you know is is owned by by its workers you start to have relationships with those people you start to have conversations with people who are having conversations with the people who grew your food and that changes the way you think it changes your expectations about what you're going to eat and how you can how you can exist so i'm i'm, I'm a huge advocate of small daily practices changing and in ways that are as as kind of holistic as possible so you know you know one one kind of criticism of of, of what's this lifestyle politics is well you know buying organic veg from asda is you know is no different and my response is yeah <laughs> probably is better than non-organic veg from asda but that's not what i would call a, a, a you know a, a legitimate or a, 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 a kind of progressive lifestyle change going to your local worker co-op um is one of the criticisms another criticism that people make is that you know that it's only privileged people who can do that and i think we have to engage with with those questions in lots in in various ways and, and i will just just kind of quickly because i don't want to take up too much time with this but i think <clears throat> that's that's really problematic it's a really kind of easy get out to say oh, well only middle class people can afford kind of green green technology green food clearly clearly there are there's a truth in that and and if you can't afford to buy organic veg from your local whole food shop then you, then you can't do that but it gives a huge amount of power to capitalism it was, it's it's really i find it really interesting because it's a really disempowering critique to say you know unless unless you're really wealthy you can't act well we can act well there are so many things we can do in our lives the, and this is another really lovely quote that Gustav Landau had, um, and I forget it exactly, but he said it in a letter to a friend. He said, which one of us can honestly say we've acted to the, to the limits of our freedom? And his point was, you know, we constantly acquiesce to this society. We constantly kind of behave in ways that it tells us to behave. And, and, we, and we say we can't do anything else because of our social critique but actually we can we can do many things very differently and we all can we've all got options to to kind of push constantly at those at those limits and it's not about being pure or perfect or um getting everything right and it's not about tallying you know i'm better than you because i bought buy more organic veg than you but it's about a reflexive life it's about thinking okay i can buy this thing tomorrow because capitalism allows me and the state allows me but what do my what do my politics say you know and maybe maybe my politics are saying well look, maybe i shouldn't 
by this thing. Maybe I shouldn't behave in this way. Maybe I shouldn't fly. Maybe I shouldn't, you know, ask someone to, to imprison a pig so that I can eat his flesh, whatever it is, you know, and we're going to have different responses to that. But I think an engagement with our daily practice is, is, is vital. So Ines also asks, uh, what are your thoughts on charter cities? You briefly mentioned transition towns. I wasn't entirely clear whether you thought the whole thing was like a middle-class project. Um, I'm assuming that you, it's, it's more nuanced than that. Um, I think you're, you're saying that it's uh, kind of been um, uh, captured in a way by capital and maybe a certain class, right? It's only going to happen in a certain um, socioeconomic um yeah, it's only going to ha- happen in a certain location and only certain people might have um, access to these things. I think I, I've i read something about the Preston model, like this idea of you know, circular, econ- circular economies um, being other alternatives. Um, but yeah, is there anything you want to say to things like charter cities? For, for people that don't know, by the way, a charter city is a city in which the governing system is defined by the city's own charter document rather than solely by general law. So it seems to be you know, quite a significant improvement on um, things. Uh, as they are again, the idea of reducing things down to the uh, the smallest possible, um, yeah, locality, so that people can have more of a say in the decisions that affect them. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think one one of the I mean one of the problems with transition time is just is you know is 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 Rob Hopkins and 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 certain people behind it and their and their kind of political analysis, but you you, you kind of look at it the other way which is the, a problem with, you know, also the Preston model sometimes, or the, you know, transition towns, is that more radical people, people with a more radical critique, kind of steer, steer clear of those things because they're not, they're not radical enough. And, and this happened with the co-op movement, I think. Um, or it's arguable that this is kind of an element of the co-op movement, is a lot of the socialist movement rejected co-ops as being you know still being kind of ultimately capitalist and so it left the co-op movement um to to people who were who were kind of okay with that um and so the co-op movement has progressed and, and and developed without that kind of critical input and it's i mean you know the labor party is a kind of classic example of that isn't it like you know you've got radicals in it um, trying to kind of push it in a radical direction. And then you've got these purges of radicals and the radicals leave because you've got, you know, someone like Keir Starmer in power and quite understandably people think, I don't want to be in this party because it's this. And then, and then it becomes, you know, even more right wing. And so, yeah, I've got a lot of time for, localized models of democracy and 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 kind of change and i think some things like the Preston model can can be really interesting the kind of municipal model um but they're always they're always going and this is this is the slippery slope isn't it i think you know they're always going to be fraught you're going to be working with people you disagree with you're going to be working with still the state you know, even if you've got your city charter or your, your kind of municipal rationale with your local council, you know, you're still going to be working with capital and the state. And it's a question of like how far you're kind of willing to navigate that. But they're going to be worse if people who, who have a, 
a, a very strong critique of those things of, of the state and of capitalism or just abandon it and leave it to just to, to people who you know don't have those critiques so it, it in a way it's people who disagree with those things are the right people to be involved in them um in in, in some kind of in some in some sense but yeah i think i mean i'm a reformist i suppose ultimately i think you know we need to we need to always be pushing in the right direction and always challenging things and anything that kind of can can kind of generate more local engagement um with and i don't even think of it necessarily as local democracy but local engagement um and kind of active citizenship which is a horrible expression and again, that's something else that's just been captured. You know, the citizenship, the, the big society, you know, I mean, that was a brilliant idea, not because it, uh, for, for the right, not because you know, it created a big society, but because it just, it just meant it was that much harder for people who actually wanted to do some of that progressive stuff to do it because that was just, it became sully. That's what the right is much better at the left is doing, is shitting on good ideas so that it leaves its foul capitalist stench and we don't want to touch it. Personal responsibility, lifestyle politics. People say, you know, you can't ask people to be responsible because that's neoliberal. Neoliberalism is like claimed personal responsibility and sullied it so that you can't talk about it. So the right does that really effectively, um, I think, and it will do that and is doing that with ideas of big society, citizenship, local charters, you know, the northern powerhouse, devolution. And it's a question of us navigating those things. But yeah, broadly speaking, I'm in favour of, of attempts to, to kind of strengthen involvement in our daily lives and in our locales. Okay. So the final quick fire questions. You're not allowed to think about these. You just have to. I just have to answer. Your favorite book, fiction and non-fiction. Uh, favorite book. I'm going to say just Confederacy of Dunces. It just kind of came into my head. Um, can't remember. Is it John John Dunn? No, it's not John Dunn, is it? What's he called? Anyway, Confederacy of Dunces, you can find out. It's a beautiful book. Probably just because we were talking about it recently. Um, but it's a really beautiful, very, very funny book and a very tragic story around the writing of it. Um, Nonfiction. Um, I'm going to say The Hard Road to Renewal at the moment. Stuart Hall. I'm really, really... In, um, really into Stuart Hall at the moment and his his kind of analysis was very very astute very smart and the hard road to renewal was um really just a, he didn't really write monographs and he didn't really write all that much on his own he, he collaborated a lot but the hard road to renewal is a kind of collection of essays from the 70s and 80s uh, he kind of died I think he coined Thatcherism as a term and really kind of diagnosed the rise of the new right and was very very sharp in his analysis of of what i mean what i was just saying actually is probably kind of influenced by stuart hall that kind of the right's capacity to to kind of capture things 
um, was his kind of fascination and the left yeah, but... the left's inability to to do the same yeah for this is a good opportunity if if someone is still listening <laughs> i think we're at like the three and a half hour mark but a uh, good opportunity to plug a video i did on woke washing and the art of recuperation um yeah recuperation is a very interesting uh idea within uh sociology and especially i guess explicitly and especially um uh yeah radical academia um how corporations uh capture certain uh radical memes like che Guevara, for example his images everywhere um who is your favorite thinker uh, i don't have one i mean i know that's kind of like a maybe a naff response but I like Stuart Hall. I like Gramsci. I like Eric Fromm was was the first person I read as a as a teenager. Um, this is the first kind of non-fiction I really liked Eric Fromm. Um, I don't know if I would feel quite the same. I probably haven't read him for like twenty years or more. But yeah, he, I'm sure he influenced my my thinking a lot as a teenager. Um, I always thought Colin Ward was really a beautiful writer, um, just a very beautiful soul. I did meet him actually in uh, oh, wow. a few years before he, he died. Um, he was very, very old um, and yeah, not not quite the, the kind of person he was, but yeah, he, there, was, there was always something very powerful about Colin Ward's kind of, just that really almost kind of innocent, uh, kind of very beautiful like very you know incredibly critical but without that kind of malice yeah or ego or ego yeah no ego at all really um yeah very inspirational character uh, but at the moment like i say Stuart hall is is the kind of person that's probably influencing my thinking at the most iris marion young as well really informed my view of liberalism and and kind of how liberalism operates um, another person who sadly died kind of before her time. Um, yeah. I think um, you, you probably answered this previously, so feel free to just uh, to pass over this one. Uh, but what advice would you give to young people, um, perhaps just about to come out of uh, mandatory state you know, indoctrination, otherwise known as the school system? You're an anarchist, you can't give advice, you can't give blueprints. <laughs> Read, read a lot, read a lot, and don't think that because you've criticised one thing, you're you're then, you know. I think that's a very easy easy mistake for radicals to make, you know, and or for for anyone to make really is, you know, I've I've criticised the 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 system, therefore I am a critical reflexive person. No one is a, no one is just a, a critical reflexive person. We all get trapped in our kind of channels. And the question is like how often you can kind of put your head above the channel and kind of look at your own channel and look at other people's channels. And it's very hard to do. And none of us, none of us, are, you know, we couldn't, we, we wouldn't function as, as, as animals if we were doing it all the time. We, our brains would just collapse. We have to have patterns of behavior. We have to just have common senses. We have to have assumed truths just to navigate the world. But we can try and kind of critique and question and so 
yeah, a kind of a balance. Don't paralyze yourselves, but 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 look around. If you if you get interested in anarchism, read different anarchists and and read criticisms of anarchism. Read and and don't assume that because someone criticizes something you believe that they're a nasty person and that they're they're, they're talking bullshit. Listen to their criticisms. Assume that they're well intentioned and ask you know how. I think there's something Sartre talked a lot about this kind of bad faith that when when someone says we dis, when someone says something that we disagree with we kind of assume that they're lying that they can't really believe it and they're just trying to manipulate us or you know kind of get one over on us but actually people you know people generally believe what they're saying and they believe it for a reason it doesn't make make it right but it's it's always interesting to listen to those things um, and challenge ourselves with other people's perspectives yeah don't grow old <laughs> um yeah it reminds me of uh, socrates in plato's mino where he says you know people who are doing bad things are still doing them for what they perceive as good reasons right and so if you just take that fundamental truth on board um i think you'll 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 go a long way and it also reminds me what you said there of um you know you, you kind of have to exist at some level as a human being uh you know walt whitman's uh beautiful line much quoted uh, perhaps overdone uh, but I contain multitudes, right? So that and that brings me on to like Paul Goodman, who I think once said, um, you know, if you really try to exist without those multitudes and internal contradictions in you know the the contradictory capitalist society that we live in, you would um, you would be schizophrenic. You, you know, there's there's no way to do it. Um, cool. I think that's a nice place to end. Um, you're you're a sensible person, and so you're not on Twitter. But if people would like to hear more from you. Where can they find you? Uh, I live in Belper. Um, <laughs> you can you can put my email address up if you want, unless uh, yeah. maybe put it with a little thing so it doesn't get kind of spammed. But yeah, put my email address on on this thread if you want, um, or people can kind of contact you maybe. And yeah, yeah, but yeah I don't I don't I'm not really a social media sort of person. Uh, as we say, uh, I, I do I do email is. Uh, is my kind of concession <laughs> um thank you for doing this matt um I, I, when i read your book it was uh, a breath of fresh air um you're an incredibly um nuanced thinker and i think that book is really really important um so i appreciate you giving so much of your time um to speak today and Hopefully we can speak again because I really wanted to talk to you about uh, spirituality and anarchism, um, you know, and the the place of you know love and uh, yeah self reflection from a more um, yeah spiritual standpoint and uh, get away from that the economics and the materialism. So hopefully we can do that again if if people like this and even if they don't, uh, we can. So, so thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, it's been it's been a uh, been interesting chatting. Definitely do it again. <laughs>